1: Morning, everyone, so glad you're with us. We've got a lot ahead today, so let's get started with five things to know for this Wednesday, September 13th, new overnight Kim Jong-un meeting with Vladimir Putin in Russia, with the North Korean leader promising to back Putin's sacred fight.
2: And House Speaker Kevin McCarthy ordering an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. The White House calls it evident an evidence-free goose chase. And a new op-ed in the Washington Post argues President Biden should not run again in 2024. David Ignatius writes that running again risks undoing the president's biggest achievement, which he says was stopping Donald Trump.
1: The manhunt for the escaped killer in Pennsylvania now enters week two. Police say he is armed, desperate and dangerous. And now his mother is speaking out.
2: And it was certainly tearing up Poppy's heart last night seeing NSYNC reunite after all these years on the stage at the VMAs. Oh, yes. CNN This Morning (laughs) starts right now.
1: We will get to Phil's news about NSYNC. Did you say that the anthem of your childhood? I d- you do not tell people oh, things right, I Mrs. say <laughs> when we are not on camera. We're going to get to that in a moment and have a little fun. But serious breaking news overnight is this. North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un and Vladimir Putin meeting face-to-face in Russia. As U.S. officials sound the alarm about this potential arms deal ahead, they met at a space rocket launch facility in Russia's Far East. Putin needs weapons and ammunition for his brutal conflict in Ukraine. And U.S. officials tell CNN North Korea is looking to do a deal in exchange for satellite and nuclear submarine technology.
2: With Putin by his side, Kim Jong un vowed to stand by Russia as the conflict grinds on with no end in sight.
3: Russia is engaged in a fight for justice to defend the sovereign right and security interest against the hegemonic forces. I will always be standing with Russia. I'm using this opportunity to make it clear.
2: It was a marathon multi-day journey for Kim Jong-un in his armored train from Pyongyang all the way to Siberia. It's his first known trip outside of North Korea in almost four years CNN senior international correspondent Matthew Chance is live for us in Moscow. Matthew, I think the big question right now is what are the tangible kind of deliverables coming out of this meeting?
3: Well, I mean, in terms of tangible deliverables, there haven't been any. I mean, there's been a shroud of secrecy over the whole process. We didn't know at any given time where Kim Jong-un, the reclusive North Korean leader, was actually located. And then he popped up at this uh, cosmodrome, the Vostochny Cosmodrome, uh, thousands of miles from Moscow, of course, uh, in the far east of Russia, where he met with Vladimir Putin, the Russian president, and they discussed, you know, behind closed doors, according to the Kremlin, a whole range of issues from, you know, food supplies to military interaction uh, to the issues of of space. Uh, Before the uh, the talks got underway, uh, Putin said that, you know, he, he hinted that Russia would help North Korea achieved their objective of getting satellites into space. They've tried and failed over the past several months to to do that. Um, And of course, you just heard the supportive words from Kim Jong-un as well when it comes to Russia in its fight against what he calls imperialism, obviously a, a, a metaphor there for uh, a reference rather to, to the West, the United States in particular. Um, but there's been no specific deal. They haven't signed anything. Um, and any deal they have done has been done behind, behind closed doors and is secret. But it doesn't mean they haven't discussed the delivery of weapons. Russia, of course, Desperately needs uh, weapons and, and and ammunition, particularly uh, on the front lines in its fight in Ukraine. And of course, North Korea has vast stockpiles of Soviet-era ammunition that's been it's been building up for the past forty years that it could transfer to Russia, according to experts, within a matter of days if that deal is done. And of course, you know what could Russia give North Korea in return? Well, you know, there's already been, as they were meeting, uh, two rocket launches from North Korea into the Sea of Japan further kind of uh, threatening or destabilizing that Korean peninsula area and that entire region. And the big concern is that if it gets uh, ammunition from North Korea, what will Russia give North Korea in return? Phil?
1: That's the big question, right? Big picture, Matthew. What comes out of this? I mean, you, you heard the North Korean leader say that his trip to Russia was a clear manifestation of North Korea prioritizing the strategic importance of that relationship. What does come next?
3: Well, I mean look i mean it's, it depends on what they 've agreed behind closed doors, and, and as I say that 's not being made public. It may never be made public or certainly not for the foreseeable future. Mm-hmm. but yet, yeah, look, I mean, from a North Korean point of view, they are looking to Russia to provide them with technological know-how, so they can improve uh, their missile technology, they can improve their ability to get satellites into space. But of course, we all know the launch vehicle for satellites into space is also technology that can be applied to to missiles as as well. And that's what the big geopolitical concern is around the region and around the globe, that this sort of alliance, if you like, between North Korea and And Russia may have negative consequences both in the region, uh, in the Asian region, and on the battlefield in Ukraine as well. All right, Matthew
2: Chance for us. Thank you.
1: Let's talk about really all these significant developments overnight. CNN political and national security analyst David Sanger is here. David, you know this just about as well as anyone and better than most. What does this mean? All of this language, because they're saying a lot, by the way, both sides, uh, about this meeting.
4: Well, Poppy, they are. I mean, first of all, what a meeting of pariah states, right? Can you think of two countries that are uh, more sanctioned by the West at this point than North Korea and Russia? Hard to come up with a list. So they've got one unifying concept. The second thing I think we've learned out of this is that a little more than 18 months into this war, the war itself has become the central organizing principle Of Vladimir Putin's foreign policy. He was not planning on having to go deal with this issue in uh, the middle of 2023. He thought it would be, you know, well in uh, the rearview mirror. Instead, he's searching around for the arms he needs. And North Korea has a number of advantages, a lot of aging stocks of tanks, artillery, mines. And remember, He's lost a lot of stuff in the course of uh, of these 18 months. So he needs replacements. They may not be the highest tech stuff, but at least it'll give him something to put back on the battlefield. And Kim, as uh, Matthew pointed out, has had a very difficult time getting satellites up uh, into the air. We don't know exactly why he's had this, this much trouble in the past. The United States and others have run operations to complicate their missile launches. We don't know if that's happened in this case, but he needs some help.
2: To that point, David, and Matthew mentioned it, you're mentioning it as well. The, this is one of those moments where, particularly if there are no documents signed or no declarations released, people are trying to read the tea leaves, um, including where they actually were, being at the Cosmodrome. Uh, do we have a sense, Russia is notoriously very tight, and they hold close to the vest, their technology. Um, particularly on weapon systems, do we have any sense right now of what they might be willing to transfer given kind of their desperation when it comes to what they need from North Korea?
4: Well, Phil, that is the big mystery. Um, you know, over the years, the uh, North Korean missile fleet has been very heavily uh, focused on um, uh, Russian-based technology. They've gotten some stuff from the Chinese, but mostly they've gotten their stuff from Russia. And that has made a, a significant difference to them. The question is, what else uh, is Kim ready to give them? I'm sorry, is uh, Putin ready to give them, including uh, satellite technology, something that uh, Kim uh, needs uh, a good deal of. So it's going to be uh, interesting to see what leaks out. You know, um, the Russian spokesman said. Clearly, there would be agreements that were not made public. So I'm sure that's the focus of American and other intelligence agencies now.
1: A- Absolutely. What don't we know? The key question. David Sanger, thank you for your insight this morning. Phil.
2: Well, from that major news to this major news this morning, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is moving to open a formal impeachment inquiry into President Biden. And It is certainly rattling. Washington is going to have widespread repercussions around the country Heading into 2024, the unilateral decision comes less than two weeks after McCarthy said he would not open an official probe without a floor vote. McCarthy has been facing pressure, however, behind the scenes from hardline conservatives for weeks, and this appears to be his attempt to keep members from rebelling ahead of that critical government shutdown deadline, and from forcing a vote to remove him from his job entirely. CNN's Lauren Fox joins us now, Uh, Lauren. It felt like this was moving in this direction. I think the big question is, do Republicans you're talking to feel like they actually have the evidence to move forward here? Or was this purely uh, Kevin McCarthy trying to survive another day?
5: Well, certainly this moved much more quickly, Phil, than anyone had thought it would. We expected that by the end of the week, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy would make it clear to his conference that he supported opening this inquiry, but doing so just hours before the House came back into session was certainly a very big development. The other thing that was so interesting is that you had a number of Republicans getting back into Washington, some of whom had not supported the idea of moving forward with this impeachment inquiry, having to sort of get their arms around this new idea that this is the direction that the House is moving. Like you noted, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy had made it clear to his members that he thought he would bring a vote to the floor of the House if he moved forward with this step. Making the announcement was obviously something very different. Emerging from his office on Capitol Hill, the Speaker of the House delivered this declaration.
3: Today, I
5: am directing our House committee
3: to open a formal impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden.
5: Speaker Kevin McCarthy claims there are questions about whether President Joe Biden financially benefited from his son, Hunter Biden's foreign business deals and answers are needed.
3: These are allegations of abuse of power, obstruction and corruption. And they warrant further investigation by the House of Representatives. The American people deserve to know that the public offices are not for sale. And that the federal government is not being used to cover up the actions of a politically
5: associated family. The White House firing back immediately.
6: The truth is is that the president did nothing wrong, that the Republicans in the House are wasting millions and millions of taxpayer dollars.
5: House Democrats also
7: quick to respond. There is not a shred of evidence that President Joe Biden has committed a crime. This is an illegitimate impeachment inquiry, period, full stop.
5: While the House-led GOP investigations have yet to provide any direct evidence of wrongdoing by the president, McCarthy's move is seen by many Democrats as caving to pressure from his right flank.
2: This is a purely political partisan game that they're playing at the behest of Donald Trump to protect
5: him, to distract from him and to try to help him in the election in 2024. On the Republican side, not all members are on the same page, including one key member of the House Judiciary Committee.
8: I have not seen any evidence that links uh, President Biden to Hunter Biden's activities at this point. I will be getting a briefing later in the week. I'm looking forward to uh, understanding more of what the Oversight Committee has uncovered. But at this point, I I have not seen that evidence.
5: The inquiry comes as a September 30th deadline to keep the government funded and avert a shutdown looms. It also coincides with threats to bring forward a motion to remove McCarthy as Speaker.
9: We have got to seize the initiative. That means forcing votes on impeachment. And if Kevin McCarthy stands in our way, uh, he may not have the job long.
5: And House conservatives, Phil, did not waste any time making it clear that opening this impeachment inquiry was not going to help Kevin McCarthy when it came to trying to figure out a path forward to fund the government. You had the House Freedom Caucus holding a more than hour-long press conference yesterday, making it clear they will not support a short-term spending bill. And you have some of those members threatening to oust McCarthy if he tries to bring one to the floor. Phil.
2: Lauren, if you can stick with me for a sec, because the thing I'm fascinated by here is there are 18 Republicans in a very narrow majority that represent districts won by President Biden. They are all up for reelection in 2024 and are frontline top targets for Democrats. Where are they on this?
5: Yeah, I spoke with one Republican member, Don Bacon, yesterday. He has been on the fence about opening this impeachment inquiry. And he said, look, I would feel differently about this if I saw direct evidence. He said that he thought that the committees on judiciary and oversight were doing good work. But his argument was you have to have direct evidence tying the president to his son's business dealings. And there are a lot of Republicans like Ken Buck in that piece who are making it clear they do not see that evidence yet. You can expect that the oversight committees, Judiciary Committee staffs, they're going to be doing their work to try to educate members on what they have found so far. But obviously, a lot of Republicans still have questions about what direct evidence there is. And at this point, there hasn't been any that those committees have uncovered. Phil?
2: Pretty critical point. This is a new day in Washington and throughout the country heading into a presidential election cycle. Lauren Fox, appreciate it from the Capitol. Poppy?
1: Bill, thank you. Police, an escaped murderer is now armed with a stolen rifle equipped with a scope. As this manhunt in Pennsylvania enters its second week, we'll take you live to the search. And ahead, the new op-ed that is encouraging President Biden not to run for a second term. More CNN This Morning to come after the break.
10: This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit JDPower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or SleepNumber.com.
1: Welcome back to CNN this morning. Police in Pennsylvania warning the convicted killer who escaped from prison two weeks ago is, quote, armed and extremely dangerous. A homeowner reported firing shots at someone that matched Danielo Cavalcante's description after that person stole a rifle from his garage and what police are calling a crime of opportunity, they believe he is desperate enough to use it. Danny Freeman joins us live again this morning in Chester County, Pennsylvania with more. Danny, what are police saying? Where are they looking now?
11: Well, Bobby, police are still at this point focused on this latest perimeter here in South Coventry Township. But frankly, the latest is that Danilo Cavalcante is still armed, still dangerous, and still on the loose. Now, Poppy, we did see some police activity overnight, but at this point, uh, no confirmed sightings. Uh, We do expect to see some fresh law enforcement agents coming in as this shift change begins in the next hour or so. Uh, And this recent show of force, you can still see it behind me, is all after those two big sightings on Monday evening. And just to recap, the first was at 8 p.m., where a woman who was driving along a road in the search area says she thought she saw Cavalcante crouch down on the road Officers came to investigate. They found footprints and they also found Cavalcante's prison shoes. And then, of course, the second sighting was a little less than two hours later uh, when Cavalcante stole that rifle from an open garage and evaded gunfire from the owner of that home. But, Papi, I want to bring up some new reporting that came out yesterday afternoon, actually from the New York Times. It's worth mentioning because the New York Times actually went out to a rural area of Brazil and they were able to interview Cavalcante's mother. Cavalcante's mother came into play because earlier in this investigation, she actually recorded a uh, recording of herself speaking in Portuguese, uh, urging Cavalcante to surrender and police helicopters blasted that message from above. Uh, And the New York Times interviewed her and she told them that basically Cavalcante at this point is just fighting to survive. Her quote being directly, his training was his suffering. It was going to sleep hungry. It was waking up as I wondered what to feed them. That's from Irosima Cavalcante. She says that they grew up for uh, her children, uh, and they grew up always working, and that that uh, challenges and those challenges and those hardships really have led to this continued escape here. Uh, again, Poppy, though we're on day 14 right now, police still saying they're holding this perimeter. Mm-hmm. We're all waiting to see if a capture comes out of this now. Danny Poppy. Freeman,
1: that's fascinating to hear what his mother had to say about how he was raised and how that might contribute to his success of evading authorities. Now, thank you very much, Bill.
2: Well, this morning, Bermuda is under a tropical storm warning as Hurricane Lee keeps growing as it moves north in the Atlantic. The Category 3 storm has sustained winds of 115 miles an hour. Meteorologist Derek Van Dam is tracking Lee in the CNN Severe Weather Center. Uh, Derek, I was asked yesterday by somebody, do you know if this is going to hit the East Coast? And my first response was, I'm not Derek Van Dam. Uh, but my second was, people have been watching this. It has been hanging out there for a couple of days. What is the latest on the path?
12: Yeah, well, the consensus now brings a real potential New England strike. So whether or not it's going to be a landfall, that's still up in question, but we'll certainly feel the impacts from Boston to Portland. This thing has ballooned since Saturday. In fact, the radius of the hurricane force winds has tripled since Saturday. And the area of hurricane force winds has increased by over nine times. And we expect the storm to continue to increase in its wind field, its spread, its impacts. By the weekend, as it parallels the East Coast, we think tropical storm force winds will extend in diameter about 700 miles across the entire storm. That's the same distance from Detroit to Boston. So my point being that the impacts will be felt well outside of the center of the storm. We anticipate the earliest arrival time of tropical storm force winds from Boston to Portland late Friday into the early morning hours of Saturday. This is going to be a monster wave machine increasing the rip tide or the rip uh, threats across the entire eastern seaboard. Currently a category three. Notice that bend in the official forecast track from the National Hurricane Center. They are starting to notice that. And one thing to note here, Phil, is that this is going to produce rainfall in a very saturated environment. There's rain moving through some of the hardest hit areas in Massachusetts now, additional rain means the potential for flooding this weekend across New England.
2: All right, we're keeping an eye on that going forward. Derek, thank you.
1: Now, do you know how to answer that question?
2: Yeah, watch (laughs) Derek Van Dam in the morning.
1: (laughs) Do you know about these USB ports? Yeah. There's news, I'm told.
2: Your enthusiasm is palpable.
1: Apple has unveiled its newest iPhone, which will change the way we charge our phones, I'm told. For the new iPhone 15, Apple is getting rid of the lightning port. And charger after 11 years and turning to a USB C charger. So, this is the old one, is that yeah. right?
2: You know, you have phones. Yes.
1: And well, electronics. I do not pay attention to this stuff. I have very old phones. And this is the new one, and it's compatible with non Apple products.
2: Yes, right? but it's also compatible with the newer versions of the iPads and the computers that plug in. So, it's helpful because yeah. we need to streamline. Sorry, my. It's
1: getting very away? helpful. I have a very old iPhone, the iPhone 15. Features updates to the camera, a brighter screen. It will be available for pre-order starting on Friday.
2: The critical component is when traveling with children, you can have like one cord as opposed to a <laughs> box full of 700. Never yes. finding the right one to yes. charge something when, you when your kids are screaming at you. When you have children, yes.
1: you need that. Four. Four. And they are delightful. Well, thank you. These are pretty great, too. <laughs> they are great. Now this.
2: All right, well, heartbreaking numbers out of Libya this morning. At least 5,300 people are now presumed dead after catastrophic flooding there. Many more still missing. We're going to have the latest for you
1: ahead. We will also, of course, take you live again this morning to Morocco where people are digging through the rubble, still trying, praying to find their loved ones and possessions from the homes that have been destroyed.
13: And it's similar scenes in every village on every hilltop in this region, in the foothills of the Atlas Mountains. It's as if giant running downhill has stamped stamped out the life crushed the futures of the inhabitants of these villages
2: this is a new op-ed in the washington post urging president biden not to run again for president columnist david ignatius writes quote i don't think biden and vice president harris should run for re-election it's painful to say that given my admiration for much of what they have accomplished but if he and Harris campaign together in 2024, I think Biden risks undoing his greatest achievement, which was stopping Trump. A recent polling suggests that many Democrats agree with Ignatius. Sixty seven percent of Democratic-leaning voters said they prefer a different Democratic nominee. Let's bring in CNN senior political analyst John Avalon. Uh, John, two things I want to get to right up top. The reason why this is different from other op-eds is the White House reads David Ignatius. He is not just a critical kind of longstanding voice in Washington, D.C. This White House cares what David Ignatius thinks. President Biden cares what kind of old bull columnists, uh, and I don't mean that in a pejorative way whatsoever, have to say. There's no question about that. The second is, it doesn't matter because there's no other Democrat running at this point that has a chance. At this point. But no, this
0: op-ed is going to be a gut punch to the Biden White House, exactly for the reasons you said Biden respects Ignatius. He is one of the Mandarins of, of the, the D.C. Uh, sort of policy, journalistic foreign policy establishment. And the fact that this is not coming from a reflexive critic, but someone who says in the op-ed that Biden has been a successful, consequential president, and yet he doesn't think he should run for re-election for reasons of age, vigor, and crucially, his vice president. It's a pretty devastating op-ed.
1: Yeah, right. Uh, And he's critical of Harris, saying Harris has many laudable qualities, but the simple fact is that she has failed to gain traction in the country or even within her own party. And he goes on to argue time is running out. He says in a month or so, this thing is going to be baked in stone. The issue is Democrats may not want it to be Biden, but they also don't know who they would want it to be. This is the issue with the CNN polling, right? Who would you want to see run instead of Biden? This is a question of Democrats. 82%, just someone besides Biden. And then you get specific names. It's like 3% for Bernie Sanders, 3% for Buttigieg. So yeah. what, is that? what does Biden do with that? Well, there's not a coronation process. This is
0: part of the reason that the primaries exist, right? To test talent, to give people a chance to make their case. Now, there's an, there's an old story about Abraham Lincoln being told he's got to replace a top general. And, uh, and, and, and the person says, well, Lincoln says, who would you have me replace him? Right. Me? And he says, anybody. And Lincoln says, well, I must have somebody. Yeah. And this is the problem the Democratic Party's in right now. It's not too late as a functional matter. Um, but this is a very tough op-ed, is rooted in, in reality, rooted in polling, that shows that there's deep dissatisfaction, not with Biden as a person, not with Biden as a president, but the prospect of a second term with Kamala Harris
2: being his backup. I'm interested you know, to switch over to impeachment because I think impeachment may actually have a rallying effect for Democrats. It certainly did mm-hmm. for Trump. Um, the historical context here, which I know you want to talk about. Yeah. Um, what is it? Well, look, you know, I love nerding out on the history
0: behind the headlines. But you've got to understand that impeachment in American history is very rare. The, the, the fevered season we've had the last few years is hugely unusual. Late 1860s is the first time. Andrew Johnson. This is about the direction of Reconstruction, a partisan impeachment. Then you got to fast forward to Richard Nixon in the early 1970s, um, when, when really this gains a real traction for reasons that have been established in newspapers, Woodward and Bernstein reporting, and the inquiry brings new details to light. Then Bill Clinton about lying about an affair. Um, and then Donald Trump twice. To move forward with this impeachment inquiry right now, without a vote, is really about the tail wagging the dog inside the Republican conference. This is Kevin McCarthy trying to keep his far right in line. But it's totally inconsistent with the historical standard of impeachments we've seen in the past. It's really just a revenge fantasy designed to blur the distinctions between Trump and Biden
1: heading into a presidential election. This was a colorful response from Democratic Senator John Fetterman. Ah, yes. Let's play it. I ask you about this news that uh, Speaker McCarthy has formally launched an impeachment in or has said he's going to Oh my God,
7: really? Oh my gosh. You know, oh, it's devastating. <laughs> oh, don't do it. Please don't do it. Oh no, oh no.
0: <laughs> more, 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 sort of you know worldwide wrestling than than senatorial decorum. But he makes I think the point that yeah. expresses that the Democrats are saying, which is, don't throw me into that briar patch. Like, this is this is not a serious inquiry at this date. Now, look, is the questions that are being investigated are they worthy of investigation? Questions about uh, you know you know whether President Biden benefited from his family's yeah. monetiz- you know, I fundraising think- and other things? Sure.
1: And Democrats have indicated they do have concerns about it in the latest CNN polling.
0: Yes, but not at remotely the level. There is no evidence to suggest we're at the place where an impeachment inquiry could begin. And so what Fetterman is saying there by doing the performative, oh, this is so scary, is this is a little ridiculous. This is a bit of a farce. And it's likely to have political blowback that hurts Republicans. Now, again, Depending on what emerges, more information can you know can come out. But Democrats are looking at this and saying this is baseless. This is a sign of weakness by Kevin McCarthy because he's got to corral his far right, and he's doing disservice to the Constitution, in the process, defining impeachment down.
2: Yeah, great context as always, John Adams. Appreciate Thank it,
1: you, All right. There's video that shows aid being dropped from a military helicopter into a Moroccan community just left devastated by Friday's earthquake. Our Sam Kiley joins us live from the ground. Sam.
13: Well, I'll be joining you later on to discuss why it's so necessary to use aircraft such as helicopters to reach these remote areas. More of that on CNN this morning.
1: Zina says that
14: a lot of her friends died in this earthquake. She can still see her school up at the top of the mountains, but she is still afraid of the potential aftershocks that could happen. Of course the memories of her friends who have passed away is something she thinks about constantly.
1: Wow, that is Arnada Bashir on the ground in the disaster zone, speaking with a young survivor in a tiny village high up in Morocco's Atlas Mountains. And this morning, officials there say the death toll has increased to nearly 3,000 people as rescue teams race against time to try to find any potential survivors five days after the earthquake devastated the Marrakech region. Entire towns and villages wiped out and the quakes, aftershocks, reducing busy marketplaces and homes to rubble. Moroccan armed forces are now providing relief efforts to earthquake victims. UNICEF reports nearly 100,000 children have been affected. On Tuesday, Morocco's king visited this hospital, meeting with injured survivors and donating blood. Our Sam Kiley joins us again this morning. He is live in central Morocco, just about 40 miles to the southeast of Marrakech. Sam, thank you for being there. Can you talk to us about not only what you're seeing five days later, but also the the efforts from the air to bring aid?
13: Well, here in Amsmans, you can see, and this is a medium sized town, the devastation in this otherwise urban area. We got quite used to seeing the destruction in the villages, but this is an urban area here. There's a shop still managing to keep going because the Moroccans are showing the most unbelievable levels of resilience, even in the face of a dangerous amount of masonry that threatens them. Indeed, that entire building is badly cracked up one wall. It could come down onto the heads of the people beneath it at any time. But the communities are also pulling together to try to survive uh, and helping each other out because they are getting aid from donors, private donors across the country. These tents, some of them supplied by the government, but most of them coming from private donors. And that is something that has been a serious problem for these Moroccan victims of this earthquake, the biggest earthquake in 120 years. But up in those mountains, up in the Atlas Mountains up there, that is where the problems are most acute. That is why the Moroccans have been having to dump Uh, aid out of the back of aircraft very often because some of these villages are so isolated and on such precipitous slopes that they can't even land a military aircraft to get aid out to people. So the military have been throwing aid out of the backs of uh, Chinook and Puma helicopters to try to get to people there. And of course, many, many of those villages have been utterly destroyed, totally and utterly flattened. I was in one yesterday yesterday. Uh, where 88 people were killed uh, in a community of 500 houses and just as almost as many injured. And that is the problem across these mountains. It's as if a a giant went leaping down the hillside, smashing with its feet these villages as it it went. And that's why these numbers are climbing already now, 2,900 dead.
1: Sam Kiley, thank you very much again for all your reporting since this disaster on the ground. Phil, back to you.
2: Thanks, Papi. We're going to take you east in North Africa over to Libya. The Libyan government says the death toll from the catastrophic flooding there now stands at more than 5,000, with another 10,000 people still missing and about 30,000 displaced. One official in the eastern city of Derna says the entire residential buildings have been completely swept away, and about a quarter of the town has simply disappeared. People are searching for their families and loved ones, but cell phone towers have been knocked down, making communication almost non-existent. I'd like to warn our viewers that these next images of the disaster zone are graphic. Officials say some neighborhoods are resorting to mass burials due to the sheer numbers of the dead. This video shows bodies lined up on the sidewalk as hospitals at capacity are no longer functioning while the morgues are full.
1: In just a couple hours on Capitol Hill, there will be a meeting with top tech executives. They're meeting about artificial intelligence. AI will tell you the big names attending, but also the criticism that this is all happening behind closed doors.
2: And an FDA panel just found that a popular over-the-counter medicine for cold and allergies doesn't actually work. What you need to know, that's ahead.
1: More CNN This Morning to come after the break. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg will not be squaring off in a cage fight anytime soon. Remember when that was going to happen. But the two tech titans will be in the same room today. They're among a number of high-profile tech CEOs that will attend a long-awaited artificial intelligence summit. This is happening on Capitol Hill. It is bipartisan, and it is closed to the public.
2: Well, only senators will be involved in this closed-door summit. We're told it will focus on the issues facing AI regulation, including how to protect workers, national security, copyright concerns, and how to defend against, quote, doomsday scenarios. Joining us now, the host of On with Kara Swisher. Uh, Kara, not that I don't have faith in our legislative bodies and system and lawmakers, uh, what are the odds that the folks in the U.S. Capitol, whether from this group or writ large, can actually regulate this in a successful manner?
15: Well, uh, the bar is low. Uh, since they haven't passed any legislation of significance or of, with any teeth. Um, but maybe, I mean, at least they're talking about it early, but at least they have the right people in the room. Um, they they seem to be quite serious, and there's some bills that should be passing around all kinds of issues. Um, and so there's more movement than before, so I guess that's a positive. What so should... I, I, am, I have hopes, as, as you like to say.
1: I really wish Kara Swisher were in the room. Because she tends to ask intelligent, (laughs) well-informed questions, no holds barred. But what would you ask? What should they be asking? Yeah.
15: Oh, you know, the difficulty. They brought so many people together. It's a bit of a stunt, you know, when you bring all these people together in one place. They do this at the White House. They do other things. And so it's going to be a lot of... probably pontificating, etc., and not really a working session. My hope would be that it would be a working session and what exactly should happen. Um, they also really, having it in public, it seems to be important so people understand the issues and also bringing in critics and things like that. Um, this looks like, you know, you'd bring in oil company executives to talk about how we should save the environment or something like that. It's a little bit problematic in that way. Um, but in general, it's always good to talk. And I do think the people doing this, the senators, are quite up to speed on what's happening. I don't think they're they're ignorant. And, they, of course, they, they've displayed that before in past years. But I do think they mm-hmm. understand the major issues around copyright, around danger, around power. uh, And and at the meantime, nearby, there's a trial going on with Google about that, about size and danger and markets. And so that's interesting.
1: Can we ask you about that? I'm fascinated by this case because it's been more than 20 years since we've seen something Mm -hmm. like this. I mean, US v. Microsoft was similar but so different. Yes, Google has, what, 91% Mm -hmm. of the market share globally on search, but there are so many more competitors than Microsoft had. And the government in presenting this case yesterday has put out there already that the evidence are going to present against Google. um, Mm -hmm. It just isn't the same the way they were able to fight Microsoft. Where do you think this goes and why does it matter for everyone waking up to this news?
15: Uh, well, I think narrowing it is quite a smart idea because Microsoft, if you you don't remember, but it was more powerful than all of them put together, all the current ones put together. So there's a lot of very powerful tech firms, but the number 91 percent says a lot to me. Ninety one percent. That's a lot. And I think they have a good case in terms of these deals and, and, and ways that you default into Google. Google's, of course, arguing they're a better product, and of course they don't have any advantages here. But this is a size game, and so as you see, all its competitors just fall off. It shows what happens when you get to when someone gets to that percentage Mm -hmm. of the market. And I think, you know, I think narrowing is a really smart thing on by John Cantor, who's running uh, that that effort. And it's important to, to 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 really point it out, to point it out over and over again across the globe. And other countries have no, have done things about this. It's not that hard to understand yeah. uh, that one company shouldn't dominate anything.
2: Kara, you have some familiarity with a guy by the name of Elon Musk. Uh, there's a book coming out uh, by Walter yeah. Isaacson that just about everybody He's
15: staying with me tonight. Is he?
2: That's, <laughs> I would actually pay to watch that dinner table no. conversation. Uh, Walter Isaacson has no. a new book out. Everybody's no. kind of talking about it right now. I want to play something that he said to Jake Tapper. Take a listen.
0: He's had an addiction to Twitter and a pugnaciousness and an impulsiveness that sometimes immature and juvenile, sometimes just mean and cruel. And I think, you know, Twitter is like a flamethrower for him. And you're right. Sometimes he not only allows people with fringe views back on, but he amplifies them. He engages with them. And it's uh, changed
2: Twitter. What's your read on what Walter's kind of detailing there?
15: Well, it's a nice version of saying he behaves badly and is somewhat heinous in the things he says on Twitter. You know, I mean, it's this, oh, he's pugnacious. It's not pugnaciousness. It's real. It's real cruelty. And, you know, he's a very powerful guy. And I think what gets lost in it is how much power and control he has over lots of things, not limited to Twitter. Twitter just gives him a bullhorn to spew a lot of this nonsense. And so, you know, it's very typical to be like, oh, you know, that's him. Oh, well. But at the same time, um, you really have to understand the power yeah. this single person has over so many aspects of our society. And, you know, to b- brush it off as like a difficult boy is, is typical, I
1: think. Well, it's also, I mean, interesting in the context of the DOJ saying that Musk should have to come before mm-hmm. the FTC on all of this yes. stuff, right?
15: Yeah, well, it's more about privacy, and of course, he decimated the trust and safety, which had a very hard time at Twitter with the size it was. Um, and he decimated it and made all these orders that 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 violated a consent decree. He doesn't like following rules, and he's trying to push the the boundaries to see if he can get out of it. Just like the sign that he hung off the side of the building, and which he thought was hysterical, and probably you know it didn't kill anyone, but it could have. He just mm-hmm. likes to push the push the boundaries and see what he can get away with, and that's what he's what he's doing here. And again. It's not, Treating him like a toddler and, oh, that's Elon again is, to me, you know, he's an adult man of 52 and mm-hmm. probably shouldn't be tweeting these heinous things. But, you know, he is.
2: All right, Kara Swisher, do listen to her podcast, Latest One with Conan O'Brien, which is great and fascinating. Aww. Appreciate your time, as always. Thanks, Kara. Anyway. Well, new reaction this morning after fans learned that Aaron Rodgers, sadly, will not be returning to the field after just one drive with the New York Jets.
1: We'll also take you back live to Russia, where Vladimir Putin and North Korea's Kim Jong-un just wrapped up four hours of negotiations. That's next.
2: Oh, Jets fans. The New York Jets' worst fears, they were realized yesterday, and MRI confirmed that Aaron Rodgers will miss the entire season with a torn Achilles.
1: Andy Scholz joins us now with more of the worst-case scenario, I guess.
16: S- certainly, a poppy. If you got a Jets fan in your life or in the studio there today, maybe sometimes Lots of just them. give him a hu- just Give him a hug. Lots give him a them. hug because they need it right now. Yeah, you, you got to feel so bad for him. You know them, Rogers, and the Jets. You know the, there was just so much hype around this team, guys. You know we got to see it all unfold on HBO Hard Knocks. He showed us how committed Rogers was to trying to make the Jets into a Super Bowl team. But, you know, that's all over now. The Jets are going to have to try to win without him. The team placing Rodgers on injured reserve yesterday, which means he's going to be out for the year. And head coach Robert Sala, he spoke yesterday, and he said he just hurts for Rodgers.
9: I feel more for Aaron than anyone. he, he is he's invested so much into this organization, so much into this journey that he's he's embarked on and, and wanting to uh, to be a part of uh, what we've got going here and uh, and how much he's invested in not only this organization, but his teammates himself, this fan base, the city, um, you know, so I I have uh, a lot of uh, emotions for him.
16: All right, so now Milwaukee Bar had a promotion Monday night for Packers fans that were bitter about their former quarterback leaving for New York. Your entire tab was free if Aaron Rodgers started the game and the Jets lost.
17: Jacks even has a
14: playbook. I think if the Bills are winning early, we'll just stay steady. Uh, But if the Jets have a big lead, I'll probably tone it down.
16: Well, once Rodgers went out on the fourth play, people thought, well, the Bills would win and their tabs were going to be free. They started, you know, getting after it, but that didn't work out well as the Jets won in overtime on that punt returned. And the look on people's faces when they realized they now had to pay their tabs, it was quite priceless, guys. Uh, a free beer definitely tastes better than ones you got to pay for.
2: Always. Yeah, <laughs> but at that point, you probably don't even know anymore. <laughs> Andy and Schultz, really we appreciate it, my friend. Thank you. All right.
1: CNN this
18: morning continues right now. Speaker Kevin McCarthy ordering an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. No proof of wrongdoing and no House vote.
19: We will
8: go wherever the evidence takes us. At this point, I have not seen that evidence.
17: This is a party divided.
18: Vladimir Putin and Kim Jong Un giving new hints about what Russia could swap for weapons from North Korea.
4: I think the Russians are worried about being the junior partner in the Beijing-Moscow axis. The idea that Russia goes to Kim Jong Un is really a telling sign. Police
20: warn convicted killer is now armed with a stolen rifle. The owner fired
8: several shots at him, but didn't get him. We considered him dangerous, he's desperate enough to use that weapon.
1: morning, everyone. We're so glad you are here. There's major political news in Washington and major geopolitical news overseas in Russia. Yeah, there's morning. no
2: question about it. We're going to get to that in a moment. We want to start with something that is shifting the entire landscape, not just in Washington, but for the electoral map going forward as we head into 2024. This morning, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has launched a formal impeachment inquiry into President Biden, and there will be no formal House vote. This is, of course, the same Speaker Kevin McCarthy who then, in 2019, said then-Speaker Pelosi can't decide on impeachment unilaterally. It requires a full vote of the House of Representatives. And the same Kevin McCarthy who said just 12 days ago, if we move forward with an impeachment inquiry, it would occur through a vote on the floor of the People's House and not through a declaration by one person. Now, that's exactly what he's doing, directing committees to open formal impeachment inquiry into the president.
1: So what changed from September 1st? Pressure from hardline conservatives, and it's not enough to satisfy some of them like Congressman Matt Gates. Lauren Fox joins us live on Capitol Hill. Our science is at the White House with reaction from the Biden team. Lauren, let's start with you. The declaration from McCarthy yesterday has changed a lot. Yeah,
5: it certainly has, Poppy. But like you noted, the divides within the Republican conference, they remain. There are a number of House conservatives who have been pushing and pressuring Kevin McCarthy to take this step for several months now. He finally has, but not everyone is on board. And there are some Republicans who are deeply skeptical of the lack of evidence that exists right now, tying President Joe Biden directly to his son, Hunter's business dealings abroad. And that is, something that you've heard repeatedly from members like representative ken buck who sits on the judiciary
1: committee
8: i have not seen any evidence that links uh, president biden to hunter biden's activities at this point i will be getting a briefing later in the week i'm looking forward to uh understanding more of what the oversight committee has uncovered but at this point i have i have not seen that evidence
5: I also spoke with Representative Don Bacon last night as he went into House Speaker Kevin McCarthy's office for a meeting on Capitol Hill, and he said he still had concerns. He said he would feel differently if he had seen some direct evidence, but he still has concerns about opening and launching this impeachment inquiry. Now, the three committees that are going to be taking care of this investigations, Ways and Means, Oversight and Judiciary, they say they are empowered to get more documents, more interviews, more information where they hope they can find Find more direct evidence but obviously there are a lot of questions about what this means for kevin mccarthy's future and what this means for the future of some of his members in swing districts around the country
7: yeah
2: it's a very narrow majority uh, arlette over the north lawn how was the white house responding it seemed that this was heading in this direction but it happened very fast
14: Yeah, it really did, Phil. And what the White House is trying to do is paint this as a baseless, politically motivated move. From the start of McCarthy's flirtation with the possibility of an impeachment inquiry, the White House had been watching to see whether McCarthy would have the votes to launch such an inquiry. But now what they've been pointing to is that about face from McCarthy as he has now called for that inquiry to begin without actually holding a vote with his members. The White House is ultimately arguing that McCarthy is succumbing to a far right, wing part of his party. They've described this as, quote, extreme politics at its worst. The campaign has said speaker in name only Kevin McCarthy opens this baseless impeachment inquiry at the behest of Donald Trump. This is all expected to uh, ramp up as they push back on this, as these uh, uh, House investigations so far haven't proven uh, any direct evidence for President Biden to his son, Hunter Biden's business dealings. Now, one tactic that the White House is taking this morning is they're sending a letter to news organizations urging them to increase their scrutiny of the Republican Party as this impeachment inquiry goes on, saying that they have launched this uh, based on lies. Now, I Behind the scenes, uh, the team here at the White House has been bracing for the possibility of this moment for quite some time. They've assembled dozens of lawyers, legislative staff, and communication aides to craft their strategy and their approach, as this is an issue that could head into the 2024 election. I think one thing to watch also on the campaign side of things uh, is whether a debate starts to play out on whether they will fundraise off of this impeachment uh, inquiry. That is something actually that the Triple last night uh, did in some emails. And so we will see if that's a tactic that the uh, Biden campaign decides to employ as well, as there are Republicans who have tried to make clear this is an issue they want to stretch well into 2024.
2: Yeah, no question about that. It's been an aggressive response so far from the White House and the campaign, and I don't think it's going to change anytime soon. Lauren Fox, All That science. Thanks, guys.
1: Questions remain about just how much authority Republicans will have since they brought the inquiry forward without a full floor vote. Let's talk about all of this CNN legal analyst, former federal prosecutor Elliot Williams joins us now. Elliot, good to have you. Um, There's the floor vote issue and the change in the stance that McCarthy um, has made in just like the matter of two weeks. But also what's really interesting is how DOJ handled this under the Trump White House and what may happen now. So in 2020, the DOJ declared that the impeachments against Trump uh, could not proceed. You couldn't legally do this without a full house vote they were invalid let me just read you that memo from the uh, olc quote we conclude that the house must expressly authorize a committee to conduct an impeachment investigation and to use compulsory process in that investigation before the committee may compel the production of documents or testimony is that just a statement with no teeth that doesn't matter here or does it matter here
17: Well, uh, to you know, to the first part, statement without teeth, it's merely a memorandum from the Justice Department, and that does not carry the weight of law. Even if he's uh, accurate, or uh, you know, uh, Mr. Engel is accurate, in that an impeachment is an official act of Congress. It is a statement by by Congress, um, accusing a seated official of grave misconduct that might warrant their removal, merely stating so as the leader of the House Republicans simply can't, I I, I doubt it was what the the framers intended, uh, that that's how you could open an impeachment proceeding. So, you know, my my guess uh, is that that's the legally right position and that in order to figure it out, you got to take it to court, as always seems to happen in these
2: cases, Poppy. Yeah, Ellie. that's the part I want to get to here, because for those who might not be super cognizant of what the Office of Legal Counsel is or what it represents, it's not a super well-known body unless you're kind of following right. uh, torture memo type related things in the Bush <laughs> administration. Uh, but it, it serves as kind of a guiding policy binding for an administration, and it carries over and is supposed to carry over into a subsequent administration so long as it is not removed or superseded to some degree. What does this actually mean in practice? Because the this will end up in court Part, I assume is yeah. kind of the key here.
17: Right. I think that's a really important question. And so case in point, the idea that you can't prosecute a sitting president, which came up many times in the context of uh, Donald Trump, and I I gather is going to come up in the context of, of Joe Biden, at least if you believe what House Republicans are saying, that itself just comes from a Justice Department memorandum. It's not the law of the United States, but it's a recommendation from the Office of Legal Counsel, which is, in effect, America's constitutional law firm. It is the body within the Justice Department that says what's right and wrong. Legally, So this is a well-reasoned position of the United States government, but they still, it doesn't have the weight of law. They have to bring it to a federal court to decide what actually is the weight of an impeachment when just announced uh, by by the House Majority Leader.
1: How do you think the impeachments of Trump change how this goes forward? John Avalon was, I think, importantly reminding all of us this morning that having this many impeachments or impeachments at all is so rare in American history until the last— Several years.
17: Well, something's different in the water now. When you yeah. consider that Barack Obama and uh, George W. both 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 had extremely aggressive opposition from the other party and uh, you know majorities in the House of Representatives that could have impeached them if they wanted, but chose not to uh, because of the fact that neither of them engage in impeachable acts, no matter what people thought of Obama or Bush. Something has happened in the last several years. Now, I don't think it's entirely fair to sort of compare Trump's impeachments to this because what we have today appears to be an impeachment in search of facts to support it. There have not been credible allegations brought against Joe Biden having knowledge of misconduct or bribery or treason or high crimes or misdemeanors in the sense that when you look at former President Trump's conduct, at least as alleged, he's being prosecuted right now for some of the same acts that he was impeached for, at least the second time around. So it's not merely that we're getting more trigger happy with impeaching presidents. Something happened under Donald Trump, and, and this here doesn't really seem like it. This seems like outside of the bounds of what a Congress ought to be doing yeah. if they really wish to be holding a president accountable. Well,
1: the, the bounds are clearly changing yeah. and growing. Elliot, thanks very much. Helps a lot. Thanks, Phil. thanks Bobby. Thanks.
2: Well, also new this morning, North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un and Vladimir Putin meeting face-to-face in Russia as U.S. officials raise alarm about a possible arms deal. Now, they met at a space rocket launch facility in Russia's far east. Of course, Putin needs weapons and ammunition for his brutal conflict in Ukraine. And U.S. officials tell CNN North Korea is looking at supplying them in return for things like satellite and nuclear submarine technology. Putin's spokesman says today's negotiations will, quote, Very substantive. Now, with Putin by his side, Kim Jong-un vowed to stand by Russia as the conflict grinds on, with no one in sight. Russia
3: is engaged in a fight for justice to defend the sovereign right and security interest against the hegemonic forces. I will always be standing with Russia. I'm using this opportunity to make it clear.
2: CNN senior international correspondent Matthew Chance is live in Moscow. It's so striking, Matthew, to see uh, a leader that has been so isolated over the course of the last 18 or 19 months with a leader that has been so isolated for the entirety of his time leading that country now joining together, joining forces to some degree.
3: Yeah, I mean, you look at these two figures, Kim Jong-un and Vladimir Putin, and they're two of the world's most sanctioned Uh, individuals or or, or they head to the world's most sanctioned countries. That's that's certainly uh, for sure. Um, And and that's going to send very worrying messages uh, around the world, actually. Uh, In the Korean peninsula, of course, you mentioned the need that North Korea has uh, for Russian know-how, potentially, to improve its missile program and its satellite launch program. It's tried to launch a couple of satellites in the past four months uh, and, and has failed. Um, And of course, when you come to Russia, it's well known that the the conflict in Ukraine has become a war of attrition. And it may well be decided by who can sustain the sort of vast amounts of ammunition to lob over to the other side. And, you know, Russia is running short on that ammunition. Uh, North Korea is known to have... You know, vast stockpiles of the kind of ammunition uh, that would fit into the Soviet era sort of equipment that Russia has put out there on the front lines in Ukraine as well. So if there is a deal like that done, uh, then it could dramatically change the calculations both on the Korean Peninsula and on the front lines in Ukraine. As far as we know, though... That has, has not happened. Well, certainly it hasn't been announced publicly. Uh, the, uh, whatever was discussed behind the scenes has basically stayed behind closed doors. There's been a shroud of secrecy you know, flung over this whole carefully choreographed visit by Kim Jong-un. He's a very secretive leader, of course. Uh, And Vladimir Putin isn't that open either. And so we don't even know, you know, what's going to happen next, where Kim Jong-un might go next, how long he's going to be in the country. There's no joint press conference going to be given. um, And there's not really been any joint statements yet either, uh, if there ever will be. And so, yeah, we're pretty much in the dark. But obviously the big concern is what goes on behind the scenes. Will something like that, some kind of deal like the one I just outlined, actually be made behind closed doors. And that's
2: the big concern of everybody watching this right now. Yeah, certainly intelligence agencies around the world will be keeping a close eye on that going forward. Matthew Chance for us in Moscow. Thank you.
1: Just hours from now, the biggest names in tech, including Mark Zuckerberg, Elon Musk, will meet with lawmakers about the dangers of artificial intelligence. The event though, being criticized because it's closed to the public coming up, one of the heads of this event, one of the moderators, Senator Mike Rounds, joins us live.
2: And police say the escaped murderer on the loose in Pennsylvania is now armed with a stolen rifle equipped with a scope. We're going to take you there live for the latest on that ongoing manhunt.
1: More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Welcome back. So this morning, key leaders in the tech world, including Mark Zuckerberg, Elon Musk, Bill Gates, will attend a highly anticipated artificial intelligence closed door event. It's moderated by bipartisan senators Chuck Schumer and Mike Rounds. And the goal is to help lawmakers understand the industry before they try to create guardrails for AI and regulate it. One of the attendees, former Google CEO Eric Schmidt, spoke recently to our Fareed Zakaria about this technology ending up in the wrong hands.
11: What
6: happens if it can build a pathogen and it ends up in the hands of an Osama Bin Laden type of person and that pathogen can, carry, can kill a million people? So you say, no problem, we'll put what are called guardrails or alignment on that. We'll prevent it from being misused. If you give me all the weights that is open source and I'm evil, which hopefully I'm not, I can strip those constraints out and return it back to its bad news.
1: Joining us now, one of the moderators of this AI forum today, Republican Senator Mike Rounds of South Dakota. Senator, good morning. I'm so glad you're with us. Are you as worried as Eric Schmidt is?
21: Eric Schmidt brings up some very important points. These are the downsides to AI, but recognizing them doesn't stop them. We've got to recognize it and we've got to be able to deal with it. It's both the upside and the downside of AI that we want to learn more about. And we felt that in a bipartisan way, A group of four of us, uh, including Senator Schumer, Senator Heinrich and Senator Young. Mm -hmm. We wanted to bring this together and say, look, Republicans and Democrats alike, uh, this isn't going to go away. We needed to do this. And it's better if we do it in a bipartisan fashion. Let's go to work and let's learn about all the different aspects of it as much as we
1: can and uh, bring the Senate together and then let's find a path forward. You talk about upsides. For you, those upsides are very personal.
21: They are. uh, Look, two parts. First of all, um, I'm I'm on the Armed Services Committee and I always want our armed services to have the best of everything, including the AI. But on another note, and this is the one that I think a lot of people in America will see the benefits of personally, and that is when it comes to fighting uh, uh, cancers, uh, fighting long-term illnesses and so forth, I think AI has real opportunities. And this is the part that we shouldn't forget about. I lost my wife uh, not quite two years ago and uh, she died of cancer after a long illness, and during that time we saw some real bright things in terms of some of the developments and capabilities that medicine has, but AI is gonna play a part in that. I believe that we really can, um, I think we can cure cancer, but it means being able to look Mm -hmm. at lots of different alternatives, lots of different chemical cocktails, as they would say, and AI can do that a lot quicker, but it's never gonna take a doctor out, it's gonna give a doctor more tools, I want to see that happen as quickly as possible.
1: You know, you talk about how important it is for Americans to see and understand these things, but you've chosen to hold this behind closed doors. You've got critics, Democratic senators and Republican senators who don't like that. Elizabeth Warren said these tech billionaires want to lobby Congress behind closed doors with no questions asked. That is plain wrong. And here's what Republican Senator Josh Hawley thinks.
22: I think it's ridiculous that it's close press. I think it's ridiculous that all these monopolists are all here to tell senators how to shape the regulatory framework so they can make the maximum amount of money.
1: Why not do this in public?
21: Well, now, let me first clarify that it's not just the tech giants. It's also, we've got teachers union representatives. We've got AFL-CIO represented. We've got the Screenwriters Guild represented. So we've tried to make it as broad as mm-hmm. possible to get as many different opinions as possible. but. For members of the Senate to be able to hear from these people firsthand, uh, if we put it on live TV, first of all, someone probably would simply sit in their, in, in their offices and watch it. We want them together in the room with these people, and we want the individuals who are sharing this to share it directly with members of the United States Senate and to be very candid with us. And we thought we had a better chance at actually getting them to, to be able to share that if they weren't simply doing prepared statements prepared by them and their attorneys for for, for national distribution.
1: Should it be concerning that it sounds like you're saying you don't think that those tech leaders would be candid with the public, the American people, who ultimately this affects?
21: We watch individuals in front of cameras every single day, uh, in front of every single committee, And the beginning of it is always a prepared statement, and Mm -hmm. it's one that's been very carefully crafted. We don't have enough time to go through very carefully crafted opening statements. We're trying to get right to the heart of it, and we're going to do this with a hundred members of the United States Senate available for us. And We wanted them to see personally, and we wanted them to feel that it was being personally shared with them. And We wanted to respect the fact that these other tech specialists and the, the folks that are working with them on the union side that they could really level and lay this out in front and uh, to do it in a more informal way. As informal as you can get with a, mm-hmm. with 100 members of the Senate and 100 members of their staff and uh, in the, with the logistics of that particular room to try to bring in cameras and everything else. We can do that with later and more info in, info opportunities that we're going to have. But this one, we wanted to start out with having it be face-to-face.
1: We'll, we'll watch to see if there is a, a public yeah. one to follow. I do want to move to a very critical Topic And that is child poverty in America. We learned from data released yesterday that child poverty in America has doubled in the last year from the year before to last year. It went from 5.2 percent, almost a record low to 12.4 percent last year. This is largely because Congress did not renew that enhancement to the child tax credit that we had during covid. The president is pointing direct blame at congressional Republicans who didn't support that. Looking at your state of South Dakota, of America's 15 counties with the highest rate of child poverty between 2017 and 2021, six of them are in South Dakota. Do you believe there needs to be congressional action toward reauthorizing that that made such a difference for child poverty in America? Would you support it, Senator?
22: I think
21: there's two parts to this, and I think we have to look at both. First of all, It is true that we went from below the poverty level, or above the poverty level to below the poverty level. And part of it is is simply because there's more cash available through government programs and through tax relief. But there's another piece of this, and it's part that we haven't really talked about. And if we're gonna talk about the income, we also have to talk about the expenses as well, which is even a bigger part. And I know that it, it, it sounds like we're talking about inflation adjusted Uh, income coming in, but we're not talking about the impact on a household basis of what inflation has done in the last two years. And we're looking at a 16% increase in South Dakota. It means the average household is paying over $917 more per month just in living expenses. Now if you want to combine that with the fact that income is down, you see the reason why so many of these families are simply saying Bidenomics but is not working. Saying, but are you saying, I hear you, Senator. Of both.
1: Uh, I a yeah. combination well, I hear you on inflation, but, but are, are you saying that that enhanced tax credit, credit didn't matter for children? Because it was enacted before we had inflation at these levels. And I'm, I mean, the overall poverty rate went up, but I'm talking about our kids who don't have any say in this policy.
21: No, what I'm saying is, is it's a combination of both. And that the, the poverty level, it went from, Below the, or from above the poverty level to below the poverty level, but the impact is even greater when you add in, for these families, when you add in the fact that inflation has driven up the costs for them on a household by household basis, over $900 mm-hmm. a month, and that those the, even the income going up at two or 3% can't keep well, up with the increases in costs. Right. So it's a double whammy is what I'm saying. So it's a really a bigger issue. And it's the reason why when we talk about Bidenomics and when we're asked about it, Mm -hmm. the American public is simply saying it's not working. And it's part of it may very well be the fact that you don't have tax credits, but inflation has really uh, driven this up a
1: huge amount as well. Two things can be true at the same time. And this data shows us we saw a very direct uh, correlation between a policy enacted in Washington and how kids are are surviving and getting by in America. So I, I hope more attention is well, is focused and, on it, Senator. I, but you got you got to look at both. I, I, I didn't look, say this is policy I, induced inflation as well. You got to I, talk about both. I didn't say you don't. Final question for you: okay. uh, The House is launching these impeachment inquiries. I know you're not in the House, but I wonder if you agree with Republican presidential candidate, former Governor Asa Hutchinson, who told Wolf Blitzer yesterday he thinks that's premature.
21: Uh, here, here's what I. I, I We were aware that uh, Speaker McCarthy was looking at the possibility of doing an inquiry. I think he's trying to move his entire team forward. He recognizes that the appropriations process is probably the most important part of this, and he wants them to be on board with it. In the Senate, we're observing what they're doing, but the House is going to do what the House is going to do. It's their job to get their appropriations out, and however Kevin can do that to uh, to move things over, that's what we're watching. In the meantime, we've already started on the appropriations process and the In the United States Mm -hmm. Senate, our Appropriations uh, uh, Committee has sent all of the bills out. They're ready. They're on the floor. We're starting today, as a matter of fact. And uh, hopefully the House will be able to send us more. And perhaps that's part of the plan that uh, Speaker McCarthy has to keep his team together. Okay. Well,
1: keeping the team together matters a lot. Senator Rounds, I appreciate your time on this. Look forward to hearing what comes out of today's summit. Thanks very much. Thank you. You got it. Phil.
2: The House is going to do what the House is going to do is the most senator-like... I don't understand what That's these guys are Comment ever, and I'm here for it. All right. When we come back, a new op-ed in the Washington Post argues President Biden should not run again in 2024. Why David Ignatius says running again would risk undoing Biden's biggest achievement. Stay with us. New op-ed in, penned in the Washington Post urges President Biden not to run again for president. Columnist David Ignatius writes, "Quote: I don't think Biden and Vice President Harris should run for re-election." It's painful to say that, given my admiration for much of what they have accomplished. But if he and Harris campaign together in 2024, I think Biden risks undoing his greatest achievement, which was stopping Trump. Recent polling suggests that many Democrats agree with Ignatius. Sixty seven percent of Democratic leading voters say they prefer a different Democratic nominee. I want to bring in CNN's Jeff Zeleny, because, Jeff, I think what's interesting about this, there have been plenty of opinion writers who have wrote a column like this Uh, There's a reason why this is reverberating around Washington, D.C., both last night and this morning. Why? I mean, Phil, this is different uh, in many ways. The biggest reason is that David Ignatius
8: has been an admirer Of President Biden, and indeed, in fact, is an admirer of the president. As you were saying there, uh, his words, it is painful to say this. And his column and his argument is backed up by the fact that he believes that uh, President Biden has been a successful president. He believes he has governed well. And David Ignatius, Phil, as you know from covering the White House uh, and as well as all of my time there, uh, this is someone who the president uh, respects. And speaks to and knows and likes, as do uh, many of the president's advisors inside the halls of the West Wing. That's why this is different. That's why, uh, yes, it's a familiar drumbeat. It may sound familiar uh, to uh, to our viewers, but it is different in the sense that it is coming in the print edition of The Washington Post, which President Biden uh, reads every morning. And it is from David Ignatius. And he is basically saying that uh, his legacy could be enhanced by not running. But what does not uh, Um, expressed in this column is, what's the backup plan? What is the plan B? The Democratic Party has essentially uh, backed themselves in a corner here led by the president's intent to run for re-election. So for all of the hand-wringing and criticism of this, the reality is uh, he is still planning on it, and they are uh, preparing... a full board to do this. Uh, his advisors, his uh, fundraisers are meeting in Chicago uh, tonight. The vice president is going there tonight to talk about the road ahead for the convention next summer, as well as fundraising. So the train has left the station in many ways, but Ignatius is arguing that it is still time to uh, pull back a bit if the president would decide to do so. Uh, that would surprise everyone in Washington, but we shall see.
1: So does this push the hand of Democrats to answer that question, Jeff? And then what?
8: It hasn't so far. uh, You know, this certainly is not a new criticism, but it's just from a different voice. Uh, I would be surprised. I mean, Hmm. the uh, senators who ran against Uh, President Biden uh, four years ago have been quiet as church mice on this. Uh, They have not talked about uh, the fact that there should be a challenge. Senator Sanders, Senator Warren, Senator Klobuchar, Senator Booker, and others. Uh, So I would be surprised if Democrats would speak out against this because they are afraid of weakening the president. They do not want to do that. Of course, given now this impeachment inquiry coming, that could strengthen him politically in the long term. But these concerns remain from that uh, David. Ignatius expressed this morning, but this may be something that could get to the president in his head uh, because again, he respects and admires him. They both do each other so much.
1: Yeah. Jeff Selany, thank you.
2: Sure. Well, police are warning that the convicted murderer on the run in Pennsylvania now has a rifle with a scope. How that changes the search strategy now that he's armed. Stay with us.
10: Lock all external doors and windows, secure vehicles,
16: and remain indoors.
2: Pennsylvania State Police warning residents that the search for the convicted killer who escaped a county prison two weeks ago is likely within a perimeter in Chester County's South Coventry Township area, about 20 miles north of the prison. Now, police say Danielo Cavalcante stole a 22 caliber rifle from a garage of a local homeowner who fired several shots at the fugitive as he fled. Joining us now to discuss CNN chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst John Miller and Casey Jordan, a criminologist and behavioral analyst. Guys, thank you so much. Uh, John, I want to start with you. The, the addition of the weapon uh, and kind of where things stand right now. How does that shift the law enforcement approach and perspective here?
7: It won't shift their search strategy. What it does is it, it raises their risk factor, which is they were chasing an unarmed man. Now they're chasing an armed man. And. That includes, you know, the rules of engagement now. They were authorized to use deadly force before they knew he had a weapon. The difference is knowing that he has a weapon um, and law enforcement person would be very hesitant in most circumstances to shoot at someone who was running away as opposed to posing a threat directly at them. When that person has two murders on the docket and a rifle, uh, that's now within the game.
1: I'm totally fascinated, Casey, by the fact that the New York Times went to a rural part of Brazil, talked to his mother, who basically said the way that he was raised very poor, you know, many times he went to bed hungry, et cetera. He's learned to survive a lot. Yeah. When you hear that, does that make you think he is even going to be even more successful at evading authorities?
23: He'll be successful at evading authorities. But <clears throat> the bigger issue is that he is afraid of nothing because in his mother's word, his training was his suffering. So... You know, why did he break out of prison? Because he will not be contained. He has lived a terrible life, you know, from the age of five. And this isn't to excuse anything, but to just give some context to his mindset. He was shining shoes, working, you know, in the fields. So it's not so much that he knows how to survive in the woods. I think that the, 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 the stealing of the rifle, which has a scope and a flashlight, it basically is sending a message, I will not be taken alive. And his mother even says she's given up. She doesn't believe that he will be captured alive. And that she thinks that because he really needs uh, his complete freedom to simply sustain himself psychologically, everyone is in danger. Because if they close in on him, I think you might see a situation like David Matt from the Danamora prison break in 2015. He will just take as many shots as he can and he's going to give up the ghost because he's not going back to prison. Which
2: I think you kind of alluded to this the other day as well. That it seemed to be headed in that direction. What does that mean in terms of as they prepare for that potential moment? Uh, if you're law enforcement?
7: I mean, they have prepared for it in that, you know, the people leading the search, you know, the the pointy end of that spear has been the SWAT teams, which is why you've got the Pennsylvania State Police SWAT team, you have the local department's um, SWAT teams, but, you know, ATF, Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, sent up 24 agents yesterday um, to comprise two additional special weapons teams. The FBI has their SWAT people there as well. This is all under a unified command, um, but they understand his motivation to get away is the one thing that is driving him, and they also understand he has no compunction about taking lives. He's proven it at least twice.
1: How long do people heed these warnings of stay inside, lock your vehicles? I mean, you've got people with lives trying to go to work, trying to get their kids to school. If this goes on for weeks and weeks and weeks...
7: You know, people have to live their lives, uh, but they also have to have that heightened awareness. You know, as we saw just the other night, here's a guy who's in his garage working. He's got a handgun on him. He has the rifle leaning up against the wall. And this fugitive, probably actually on the run at that point, trying to find a place to hide, dashes into the garage, not expecting to find a person. Spots the rifle, picks it up, and runs away with it, and you know has been gone since. So, you know he is spontaneous yeah. and uh, and fast moving.
2: Yeah. To the, that question, the if escape is his goal, if to stay free as long as possible, why would he want to run into the people who are forced to lock their doors right now, who are having their schools closed? Doesn't he want to avoid people at this point?
23: Yeah, I don't think that that's as big a risk. I think he's he's making it up as he goes. He doesn't have a huge game plan. He did make mistakes, we know, by contacting friends and former coworkers. That's how we got the doorbell camera footage and know that he's clean shaved. He is just doing this on a day by day basis. I think it's an average citizen who will spot him. Then it's about the response time of police, how quickly they can get there. I do believe he'll be captured, but I'm not sure it will be alive. Thank you. Appreciate it, Don. Casey, thanks very much.
2: Well, an FDA panel says a popular over-the-counter decongestant found in medication for battling colds and allergies doesn't really do either. What's being done about it? That's ahead.
1: And a potential strike by the United Auto Workers Union could happen this week in just hours. Why the CEO of Ford says he's optimistic a deal will be reached before the deadline. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. I have to say we're heading into cold and flu season, and maybe the medication you thought worked well doesn't. An advisory panel to the FDA says a key ingredient in many of the over-the-counter cold and allergy medicines don't work to reduce nasal congestion. The FDA will now likely have to decide whether to keep those products on the market or not. For that, Meg Terrell joins us, our medical correspondent.
24: my gosh, I was so stunned to see this report. This is pretty crazy. These drugs have been on the market for decades. And um, the main ingredient we're talking about here is something called phenylephrine. And it's in a lot of really popular brands like Sudafed, Mucinex, Vix, Benadryl. I've got a couple here that I picked up at the pharmacy yesterday. And it's really just the oral form that we're talking about, the pills that you take for nasal decongestants. Phenylephrine is different from a drug called pseudoephedrine, which a lot of people have heard of. That was put behind pharmacy counters in 2005 in 2006 because of the risk that you could use it to create methamphetamine. And so you can still get it without a prescription in most states, but you have to provide your ID to the pharmacist and go up to the counter and ask for it. So these became a lot more common in the last few decades. Um,
2: First off, it looks like my medicine cabinet. I'm (laughs) apparently going to have to throw everything away now, but this, this isn't a safety issue though, right? So what's the FDA actually being asked to do
7: here?
24: Yeah. So it's not a safety issue. Essentially, there have just been a lot of studies that suggest these don't work. And this advisory Committee to the FDA voted unanimously to agree that the studies show these are not effective. And the problem is they're incredibly popular. More than 240 million bottles or packages of these cold and flu medicines uh, were sold in 2022 alone, amounting to $1.8 billion in retail sales. And that's not even including online sales, Costco, it's just the retail stores. And so a lot of people are using these. It's not a safety issue, but the designation they get is generally regarded as safe and effective. And doctors are worried if you're using something that may not be effective, perhaps you're not doing something that you could be doing to help yourself get better. What are the Companies saying? So the companies, of course, take issue with this. They say they do work. It's also going to be incredibly expensive for companies to try to change these formulations and switch out everything else. And so they are really taking issue with this. And the FDA has not yet acted. This is an advisory panel. We'll have to see what the FDA does.
1: Just to be very clear, Yes. These ones work.
24: Yes. Doctors tell us there are still alternatives that work. Uh, The main thing is, so this is a nasal spray version of the same drug, phenylephrine. That is expected to work because it works directly in the nose. The issue with the pills is that they get absorbed in the gut and they don't work where they're supposed to. The other big one, of course, is pseudoephedrine. You can still get that behind the counter. Uh, This one works really well. There are other things like antihistamines, uh, steroids that are nasal sprays, and, of course, saline. Uh, Doctors say these all can still help you out if you have a stuffy nose.
1: You know what Phil is doing this afternoon? Full sweep of the medicine closet. <laughs> because
2: it's time. This is, the, this is the time of year where I'm sick for like the next 15 months. Because Not, not right now. I'll, I'll put the wall up. <laughs> Meg, I'm sorry, like you. if it doesn't work, it how are you so selling helpful. it? Like, I'm sorry the companies have to change their formulas. If it doesn't yeah. work, what are we doing here, That's guys? That's
1: exactly right. This is so helpful. Thanks, you
2: <laughs> Well, the deadline is almost here for Detroit's Uh, Big three to reach a deal with the United Auto Workers Union to avoid a strike. Ford CEO Jim Farley saying he's optimistic the company can reach a deal with the union, but there are, quote, limits. The union is asking for a 40 percent pay hike over four years, a cost of living increase and other benefits. CNN's Vanessa Yurkiewicz joins us live from Detroit, just outside the GM headquarters. And Vanessa, Farley said his negotiating team is pulling all nighters at this point to avoid that strike. What's the state of play this
20: morning? We are less than 48 hours away from a potential strike against all three major major automakers, something we have never seen before. But we know that negotiations are progressing. Proposals are being traded at a rapid pace. We are hearing from sources that General Motors has likely increased their wage offer beyond the 16 percent that they offered last week, close to 20 percent. But of course, as you mentioned, not the 40 percent that the union is looking for. And Phil, just down the road, Ford held an unveiling of three new trucks that they have coming to the market next year. A lot of the people who made the trucks were in the audience. And those same people could head on strike in just a matter of days. We spoke to Jim Farley, the CEO of Ford, who said he believes that they can come to a deal in the next 48 hours. Listen to what he said about what they're willing to give in negotiations and what they're not.
19: We put an offer in today that's our most generous offer in 80 years of the UAW and Ford. Um, pay increases, elimination of tears, inflation protection, uh, five weeks of vacation, 17 paid holidays, uh, bigger contributions for retirement. But we're optimistic we'll find a way forward. We have 48 hours to go. Um, but we're not going to support a four-day work week.
20: Ford said that they are making preparations for a strike. So is the UAW. Later today, guys, we're going to be hearing from UAW head Sean Fain at 5 p.m. on Facebook. He's going to lay out the state of negotiations with the big three, and he's also going to be talking to members, guys, about preparations underway for this potential strike that
1: would start at 12 a.m. on Friday. Phil, Poppy
2: clock is ticking. Vanessa Jukavich, thank you.
1: House Speaker Kevin McCarthy launching an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. How is the Biden administration responding? We're going to be joined by Ian Sams from the White House next. Good morning, everyone. It is the top of the hour. So glad you're here with us on CNN this morning. Let's get started with five things to know for this Wednesday, September 13th. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy McCarthy ordering an impeachment inquiry into President Biden without a floor vote. The White House says the whole process has been, quote, based on lies. In a few moments, we'll be joined by Ian Sams, a spokesman from the White House Counsel's Office.
2: And Kim Jong-un and Vladimir Putin meeting face to face in Russia overnight. U.S. officials sound the alarm about a potential arms deal.
1: The manhunt for the escaped killer in Pennsylvania now enters week two. Police say he is armed and his mother says her son's life has prepared him for how to survive.
2: And New York City's pension fund taking legal action against Fox Corporation, arguing that it failed shareholders by allowing Fox News to spread the election lies that led to two defamation cases.
1: And it was the reunion Phil has been waiting for for more than a decade. All five members of NSYNC on one stage together. You can hear it here. How excited Phil is at the VMAs last night. This hour of CNN This Morning starts now.
3: These are allegations of abuse of power, obstruction and corruption. And they warrant further investigation by the House of Representatives.
7: There is not a shred of evidence that President Joe Biden has committed a crime. This is an illegitimate impeachment inquiry, period, full stop. That
2: was House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries reacting to Speaker Kevin McCarthy's new impeachment inquiry into President Biden. The unilateral move comes less than two weeks after McCarthy said he would not open an official probe without a House floor vote. It appears to be an attempt to be currying favor with hardline conservatives who have been pressuring him on this issue and on government spending for weeks. Our Republicans have been investigating President Biden since they took control of the House in January. They campaigned on the issue. So far, they've merely shed more light on his son Hunter Biden's business dealings in which the White House has repeatedly said the president has had no involvement. McCarthy faced questions about his decision Tuesday, since no concrete evidence of misconduct has been found.
17: FBI, I'm thinking about what official action you guys have proven that shows that Joe Biden
3: acted, took official action. Okay. Did, to help did, did, is this defense. impeachment or is this impeachment inquiry? Impeachment inquiry is the ability to get the information to answer the questions. That's all we're doing. America needs the answers.
1: Now, the White House is planning to send a letter to U.S. news organizations, including CNN, urging them to intensify scrutiny of McCarthy and House Republicans for launching the probe without evidence of a crime. Ian Sams wrote that letter. He'll join us in just a few minutes. Before we get to that, let's talk to our senior data reporter, Harry Enton, for a moment. What What, what is the polling show us about how Americans feel about what McCarthy's now launched?
19: Yeah. So, you know, why is Kevin McCarthy doing what he's doing? It's because he's feeling a lot of pressure from Republican congressmen and the Republican base. So let's start off with the polling, all right? Republican voters who think Joe Biden did something illegal regarding his son's business dealings, this number tells you basically everything that you need to know. The vast majority of Republican voters nationwide believe that Joe Biden did something illegal regarding Hunter Biden's business dealings, and they're putting a lot of pressure on their own congressmen. Of course, Kevin McCarthy has a bit of a math problem going on here, right? Because he has a five-seat majority, so basically, you know, if five Republicans go against him, that could be big trouble for him. And remember, there were 20 Republicans who voted against Kevin McCarthy for Speaker. Those are on the right. Those are pressuring him to launch this impeachment inquiry. And then, of course, there's the 18 Republicans who represent districts that Joe Biden won in 2020. So he's feeling this tug from the right, pushing him towards this impeachment inquiry. And then he's feeling that tug from the middle, basically saying, no, we don't want to go there. It's a really hard math problem for Kevin McCarthy. What
1: about Americans overall, outside of just Republicans, Democrats, independents?
19: Yeah. So take a look here. I think there's this idea that a lot of Republicans believe, hey, Donald Trump's in trouble, so let's put Joe Biden in trouble, too. But Americans don't see it this way. So voters overall who think they did something illegal, overall, just 38% of Americans believe that Joe Biden did something illegal with regards to his son's business dealings. Take a look here, though. 53% of Americans believe that Donald Trump did something illegal trying to overturn the 2020 election. So Americans overall do not see these two things equally. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned independence. I think there are a lot of Democrats who are sort of salivating at the idea of being able to do something on this because independents do not like Joe Biden. 66% of them hold an unfavorable view of him. But get this, just 34% of them think he did something illegal. So I think there are a lot of Democrats who are looking at these numbers and basically saying, hey, Republicans are going to go a bridge too far here. And maybe we're going to be able to turn this around on its head and basically be like, you know what, bring this forward because this is a fight that they want to have. It's something they think could help Joe Biden, especially going into 2024. It's so
1: interesting, Harry. Thank you for the numbers. I Appreciate you. it. Phil, a lot of interesting numbers. You've got the perfect guest to respond to this from the White House. Take it away.
2: Yeah, thanks, Poppy. I want to dig through all those numbers. There's definitely a lot going on here. But first, we want to start with the specifics of what's actually being followed by House Republicans and what the White House thinks of it. Joining us now to discuss McCarthy's call for an impeachment inquiry, the spokesman for the White House Counsel's Office, Ian Sams. Ian, I appreciate you taking the time this morning. I want to start with something that House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer said. He's one of the three committee chairs that will be leading this process, has been investigating the president, said a lot of things about what that investigation has entailed up to now. Take a listen
10: the president
12: and the administration was cooperating with our investigation, we wouldn't have to do impeachment inquiry. Unfortunately, we do. Uh, we now have every tool we need
2: to, to move forward in court successfully. And that's where we're headed. Well, the idea that, of cooperation and that that's why the Republicans are here to this point, what are the areas in which you guys have not been willing to comply up to this point?
6: You know, that's a great question for Chairman Comer. Uh, His own committee, just on Monday, members of his own committee put out a memo that outlined that he has received, through this process, access to reports from the Treasury Department, access to documents from the FBI, witnesses from the DOJ and the IRS, not to mention outside of the government, his subpoenas, he's received 12,000 pages of bank records, 2,000 pages of documents from Treasury. So don't take my word for it. Just a couple months ago, James Comer himself went on Fox and said, you know, as the chairman of this committee, everything I've subpoenaed, I've gotten 100 percent of what I've asked for. So I think when you ask this question about, oh, what's he talking about? Is he, are we obstructing? That question needs to go to him. He needs to be held accountable for the fact that he's saying things that are patently untrue.
2: Ian, when he talks about the potential for going to court, the new tools that they believe they have by utilizing an inquiry, I'm wondering... Is this administration planning to uh, continue to utilize the 2020 Office of Legal Counsel opinion, or 2019 opinion related to impeachment, that it's not valid if there is not a floor vote?
6: Well, I think that Republicans over the last year, Republicans in Congress, have proven that these, these sorts of poking around inquiries are nothing but a wild goose chase uh, that are illegitimate. And you know that question you asked specifically, I think, again, you should ask that of Speaker McCarthy. He's the one who 10 days ago Went on television or talked to Breitbart or whichever far right news organization they're selling these lies to today and said that we're going to have a full vote of the House, that right. it can't just be a declaration by fiat. Right. You know, that goes to exactly what he said in 2019, which was that if there was not a vote, it would be, quote, devoid of any merit. No, so I understand I think that, that. these questions are ones that need to go to the speaker. But the about OLC how opinion applies to with you this. guys.
2: That's what I'm asking. Just from an administration kind of legal perspective, as you view this process, you guys are clearly prepared for it or had been preparing for it, given, I think, the scale of response and aggressive nature of it over the course of the last couple of days. From an administration perspective, do you view that counsel's opinion as the guiding force as you deal with this?
6: Yeah, I understand the question, and I think that we're going to see what they're going to do. I don't want to speculate on what the House Republicans may or may not ask for. I mean, they won't even vote for it, and they can't even say what they're impeaching him for. So I think we're going to have to see what exactly they
2: try to do with this newfound impeachment inquiry. To that point, you know, what they're impeaching him for, uh, Republicans have been clear that they don't have – a lot of Republican moderates have been clear they haven't seen direct evidence yet. I want to tick through some of the things that Speaker McCarthy laid out as the rationale for why he decided – uh, to go this route. Uh, the idea that there, are, there was a trusted FBI informant that provided information about alleged bribes to the Biden family. Uh, what's your response to that allegation?
6: Well, what's interesting about that is that the source of this alleged bribe told the Congress during President Trump's first impeachment that that's not true, that he had never asked President Biden of anything. So the very source of this so-called allegation has already refuted it. And that's come out as part of the years of Republican investigations targeting the president, baselessly, going after him without any evidence, just to try to score political points that they've been doing for almost half a decade now. And I think that the question that we need to focus on here is is this really what the Congress should be focused on? The American yeah, right. people have needs, they need they need their leaders in Washington to be focused on them. That's what the president's doing. You see that with him talking about our investment to, to take on cancer research today. No, I understand you know, those you are know, the things I Americans wanna, want. But when I it understand. comes to that, when it comes to the bribe. You know, these are allegations that they've been making without merit for months. But I
2: think the point I'm trying to make here is to have you... They can't show any proof. And this this has been your position for a long time, and I think you know I've I've covered the policy side of this White House uh, quite a bit over the course of the last several years. I understand that, but I kind of want to tick through these to have you respond to them, since it's the basis of it, you know, the idea of... Bank records, one of the things he laid out, bank records show that nearly $20 million in payments were directed to Biden family members and associates. The Treasury Department has more than 150 transactions involving the Biden family and business associates that are flagged as suspicious activity. Anything in there uh, that you can respond to in terms of how it links to the president? Sure. The Washington Post fact-checked
6: that and found it false. The members of the House Oversight Committee who actually reviewed those reports at Treasury have stated that there was no tie to President Biden. So yet again, they've had access to these documents, and they've over and over again turned up no tie
2: to the president. And that's right. from
6: their own members.
2: The idea of uh, that there's been special treatment, uh, the president's family has been afforded special treatment by the Biden administration uh, as it relates to uh, Hunter Biden's plea deal uh, and uh, that eventually fell apart and where it stood.
6: Yeah, I mean, the president's been very clear about this since before he even took office, that The Justice Department and his administration is independent. He has not been involved in that case. He has not talked to anybody about that case. But don't take his word for it. Take the words of the GOP's own witnesses in the House who testified in an open hearing that neither Attorney General Garland nor President Biden interfered in this case. And so their own witnesses, their own investigations, not only are they not turning up evidence of the allegations they claim, they're actively refuting the allegations that the speaker is leaning on to launch this baseless
2: impeachment. Ian, one of the other allegations is that the president was uh, present at some of the meetings between Hunter Biden and his business associates. Uh, Why was the president at those meetings, on those uh, phone calls?
6: Well, again, I think this is part of the right wing's misinformation machine to try to confuse people uh, about what the truth is. The truth is that the president, as he has said publicly for years, calls his family every day to check in. He calls his son every day to check in. He calls his other family members to check in to see how they're doing. He loves them. They're a tight-knit family. And what the GOP's own witness testified in this case is that that's exactly what the president was doing. He was checking in with Hunter during a particularly hard time, I might add, a time where the family was going through uh, Hunter's brother Beau's illness. Uh, and, of course, the president checks in with his son and talks to him. But, again, that witness testified No business dealings of Hunter Biden's or anyone's was discussed in these conversations. And so, again, they're trying to make this sort of strange connection when their own investigation has disproven these claims. Uh,
2: Before I let you go in, has the president responded in terms of how the president has reacted to this, uh, especially as somebody who's been in politics and been in Washington for as long as he has been, the idea that he is now uh, subject to an impeachment inquiry as president of the United States. What's his response to that?
6: You know, the president has been in politics for a long time and I think as he would say, he's seen a lot of malarkey along the way, but this might take the cake. You know, he's focused on the issues that actually matter to the American people. You just saw him spending uh, over the last week traveling around the world, shoring up our alliances, advancing national interests in Asia, our economic interests in Asia. Uh, showing American leadership on the world stage. He's coming back here. He's announcing today a quarter billion dollar investment in cancer research to try to finally cure cancer. That's what his administration and this president is focused on every day. They're focused on the actual needs of the American people. And I think what he would say is maybe the House Republicans should join him.
2: You know, one thing, and this will be my last one. A lot of people in Washington right now, and I know this is probably going to drive your your team crazy that I ask it this way, but I think it matters because it's accurate because... The columnist who wrote a piece today asking for the president not to sit, seek re-election, David Ignatius, is well-respected within the building behind you. Uh, what's your response to that idea? It's not just about the president. It's also about the vice president, who you worked for in the 2020 uh, 20 campaign.
6: Yeah, well, I'm governed by the Hatch Act, and I want to be really careful. But obviously, the president has announced he's running for re-election, uh, and, and the president is going to make his case to the American people. Uh, and I'll refer you to the campaign for any sort of campaign questions. But this president has a lot to be proud of and a lot to run on. He's delivered some of the most consequential achievements and economic progress in generations with the Inflation Reduction Act, the infrastructure bill, the CHIPS bill, which is opening new factories and creating new manufacturing jobs around the country. That's what he's going to be talking about versus these sort of political sideshows that congressional Republicans are starting to launch into right now.
2: Any expectation he'll weigh in on this specifically anytime soon?
6: Uh, well, you know, the president can speak for himself. I will say I think he's going to stay focused on what the American people want him to focus on, which is helping to improve them, their lives, their families, not these sort of political attacks on him and his family.
2: All right. Ian Sam, spokesman for the White House counsel's office. I appreciate your time this morning. Thanks. Thanks.
1: Really Bye. important conversation, Phil, with the answer the questions um, and trying to get some answers that the American people Deserve this morning, let's bring in our political analyst, senior political analyst and anchor John Avalon, senior political commentator and columnist in New York Times, New York Magazine, Errol Lewis, and former senior investigative counsel for the January 6th committee, Hemadayu Eganga williams Thank you all for being here. I just want to start with you. I think Phil, you know, did a masterful job of trying to say here's what McCarthy said. And he claims, what does the White House say? Why isn't President Biden answering these questions or coming out? proactively and saying, let me detail for you, American people, my interactions with my son, when they happened, why they happened, and what the substance was.
22: I think probably what the White House team wants to do is uh, not elevate those claims. If you say that the claims are bogus, politically motivated, and uh, unimportant to the American people, the fastest way to reverse that impression is to have the president take time and sit, you know, evil, not, either I'm not in the Office
1: or a di- I hear you. I'm not, not suggesting a direct mm-hmm. response to each of the claims, but coming out and saying here is, you know, is and what were my interactions with
22: my son. Here's, you know, here's I, the truth. I, I think speaking for myself, I don't know what the White House is thinking, but, you know, if if there's uh, if there's a substantive claim there that can be answered, that's one thing if you think it's a fishing expedition, then you have no obligation to go out and sort of help them do their fishing expedition. You know, if, if the facts that are known, as Phil laid out, and I think he did a great job, uh, if, if that's what it is, those of us who believe that uh, uh, impeachment is a solemn and serious, detailed response to obvious claims of malfeasance, high crimes and misdemeanors is the actual language, if you don't have anything resembling that, and in this case... A phone call from six years ago about a business transaction? That's not a high crime. That's not a mistake. Yeah. I mean, like, what, what are we talking about here? And I, I, frankly, I would be bothered if the president took time to answer a claim that had so little behind it. If they've got more, then maybe we can talk about it. Yeah, look, I, I think anything is worthy of
0: investigation. But the investigations to date haven't turned up a lot of hard evidence, even including the people who've been interviewed by this committee. And so- Rushing to an impeachment inquiry is an insult to the historic gravity of impeachment proceedings, which traditionally have been undertaken once there are a lot of irrefutable facts and smoking guns that seem to implicate the president in an abuse of power on, on the level of high crimes and misdemeanors. Um, so the White House is not taking this seriously. Is that wise? Is that tenable? You know, TBD, I don't think he should give a checker speech on this right now. But uh, McCarthy's clearly being forced into this by his right flank even to the extent where he doesn't want to take a vote, which, by the way, may be required according to, you know, DOJ uh, statutes.
2: Yeah, uh, to that point, let's be clear. They're not taking a vote because they don't have the votes. Correct. Period and end of story. Let's also be clear. The reason why they're heading into this thing that McCarthy said before the 2020 election he wasn't going to do the American people would decide before he said he was ready to do it is because he has to for internal politics period end of story this is not like a subtle guessing game here that's what's literally happening but to to the idea as you look at that the idea of we're doing this because we need more investigative tools we're doing this because we need specific things that these three standing committees that are now leading the inquiry don't have the power to have is that valid?
9: Well, I, I think it's important before we get there to draw a distinction between that investigations have already been conducted here. Right. You have the DOJ, which has the most extensive tools, more extensive. I mean, I've been a federal prosecutor and I've been a House investigator and nothing stronger than the DOJ investigative tools. Mm-hmm. And for years, Department of Justice, led by a Trump-appointed U.S. attorney, has been investigating Hunter Biden. And what they have uncovered has now drawn a link between anything Hunter Biden has done and President Biden. And that's a really important point. After five years, if DOJ couldn't uncover something, I truly doubt that a House committee, as good as they can be at times, is going to uncover something different. So I think that's super important. They've already been engaged in a House investigation now for months that has not uncovered a link between President Biden and any alleged wrongdoing by Hunter Biden. And I think it's all to draw a distinction here between what's happening with President Biden, former President Trump, when grand juries conduct investigations, and I think that's a good model for what a, a thorough, proper investigation looks like, it's based on something when it starts. And it's not just a whim of one individual. And grand, a grand jury is made up of individuals, everyday Americans that come together, consider evidence, and take a vote. And they find what's called probable cause, making, meaning it's more likely than not that a crime is committed. That's what happened to President Trump. That's why he's indicted. That's a proper basis to move forward on serious charges, in that case, criminal. But here, what you're talking about is something different. It's folks moving forward with a serious investigation, effectively based upon a whim, not based on facts, not based on things that I've seen that appear to be credible, grounded in, what's in something that's substantiated. And I think that's a dangerous move.
0: Otherwise notice, yeah, the objective reality and our, our inability to decide on common facts is one of the things dumbing
2: down this place. Yeah, there's, was, I know we got to go, but there's a really telling moment in the Speaker's press conference or when he was talking about this, where he said, we've had new allegations rise in the last couple of months, which drove them to this. Not new evidence, uh-huh. not new direct links, new allegations. Right. And it was literally, he just said it, and I was like, wait, that's, I feel like my head's going to explode um, sometimes. All right, guys, we appreciate it, as always, for walking us through Well, after days of speculation and secrecy, Kim Jong-un and Vladimir Putin finally met overnight. What was discussed and how the international community is responding?
1: That's next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. After so many days of speculation and secrecy, Kim Jong-un and Vladimir Putin finally met in person overnight. Their first meeting since 2019 and it's a significant development, bringing together two leaders who are increasingly isolated on the world stage. Putin signaled a willingness to assist North Korea with its space and satellite program in defiance of international sanctions. U.S. officials have warned that Kim could be a key arms supplier to Moscow, a possible sign of just how desperate the Kremlin has become. It's not clear if the two discuss this possible arms deal we've been hearing so much about. Joining us now is CNN National Security Analyst, former Deputy Director of National Intelligence, Beth Sanner. Good morning to you. I was sort of surprised at how much information we got out of this meeting. Uh, But but there's also key things we didn't get, right? We don't know if anything was agreed to in in writing. Uh, And and we don't know on the arms front what could have been shared. What are your questions this morning? What did this reveal to you? (laughs)
18: Well, I think that, you know, we're seeing two effects here. One is symbolic. And the fact that they made this very public, this is not a, a hidden thing. And the words that were used, um, especially by Kim, really reinforcing um, what he called the just war for Putin and talking about this shared um, hatred of U.S. hegemony and, and this, their shared anti-imperialist stance. You know, we're really seeing this symbolism and this this unification of Russia and North Korea, um, a resurgence of that traditional alliance, which also brings in China. But on the, on the practical side, I think, you know, we really do need to be watching um, what comes out of this. They said no agreements were, were sign. But at the same time, um, when Putin was asked, you know, well, are you going to help North Korea with satellites? He said, well, that's why we're here. We're at the, you know, Vosochny Cosmodrome. So I think that clearly they are going to help in some way. And um, certainly North Korea looks at Russia and says, wow, you know, they pretty much have have everything we need.
2: Beth, we do we have to interrupt you right now. We do have some breaking news that we're going to take. You stand by.
18: This is
2: CNN Breaking News. And that breaking news is what we've been following now for more than a week. Every single morning, Danielo Cavalcante, the convicted murderer who escaped the Chester County, Pennsylvania uh, penitentiary, is in custody according to a law enforcement source. They have been searching with hundreds of law enforcement officials over the course of more than two, almost two weeks Mm -hmm. at this point. Just over the course of the last 36 hours, Cavalcante was able to obtain a firearm, a 22 caliber rifle, one with a scope, certainly added urgency to a very long and very stressful time, not just for law enforcement officials, but also those living in the community.
1: Absolutely. Danny Freeman on the ground live with the breaking news. Danny, what can you tell us?
11: Well, Poppy, I can tell you that I just got off the phone with a law enforcement source very close to this investigation, very close to this manhunt, who confirmed to CNN that Cavalcante has been taken into custody. Again, as you just said, after 14 days on the run, 14 days after escaping from the Chester County prison, this is the update that we're finally learning today. This is an answer to a question that so many residents in Chester County have been waiting for a resolution to this search. I should also say we're getting confirmation from Pennsylvania State Police that there will be a press conference coming up in just over 30 minutes at 9 a.m where presumably we will hear more details about this capture and i just want to paint a picture for you this morning Uh, we've seen a lot of law enforcement uh, officers and agents come into this area we're right on the perimeter uh, in south coventry township and we've notably seen for the past i would say hour to hour and a half or so uh, low flying helicopters, maybe a mile, two miles south of where we're standing right here. And, you know, we've been seeing a lot of air support helicopters, uh, fixed wing aircrafts fly over the larger area over the course of the past 24, 48 hours. But this morning, we really saw helicopters specifically focus on a much tighter circle, a much tighter perimeter. Now, at the moment, the last uh, confirmed sighting that we were alerted of uh, prior to this capture was back on Monday night. Uh, that was when. Cavalcante was able to get his hands on a rifle because it was left in an open garage. And that clearly uh, stepped up the intensity uh, of this investigation and this manhunt. Law enforcement saying that they brought as many as 500 uh, law enforcement agents to this area of Chester County to try and flush him out. It seems they have done that this morning. Again, a law enforcement source confirming to me just a few minutes ago that Danilo Cavalcante is now in custody. I'll throw it back to you for now. Danny, do
1: you know how they got him? Where exactly they got him?
11: Uh, listen, that is a good question. We're still waiting uh, on those details. I'm working my sources. The source I spoke to uh, had to get off the phone pretty quickly after I, I reached out to that person. Uh, but like I said, you know, we're looking at these this helicopter specifically, just you know, off of camera right here, this uh, state police helicopter. It's very low and it's in uh, part of this wooded area that we've been discussing this whole time. Uh, the uh, specific area, a little bit far south of here, there is a creek that runs along this uh, main uh, Route 100 that we're standing on. Uh, that could be the area that police are searching and focused on. But like I said, the troopers are flying down to that area. The helicopter has been low, uh, and we're waiting for more details that we will hopefully get at around 9 a.m. when Pennsylvania State Police will host a press conference, uh, presumably announcing this capture officially. Poppy.
2: Hey, Danny, when, when did you notice a tempo shift? You're talking about how you could see kind of the air assets and, and the, the vehicles, do you notice something change over the course of the last hour or so or has this just been a pretty steady effort over the course of the last several days?
11: So here's the thing. It it definitely has been a steady effort, certainly since uh, last, yesterday, right, when we found out that Cavalcante had a rifle. Uh, Obviously, law enforcement really changing their tone, saying that we're going to uh, make this intense push today. Um, But honestly, Phil, this morning, uh, when we saw uh, law enforcement presence returning to this area, it still seemed pretty business as usual. There were some updates, uh, rather, there were some activity overnight, uh, but we saw what looked like the regular shift change uh, at around seven o'clock this morning. We saw them bringing in the armored vehicles again. We saw them bringing in the Pennsylvania State Police horses that we've seen uh, combing through some of the riverbeds again. So all of that, frankly, seemed pretty normal uh, of what we've seen the past 24, 48 hours, specifically in this part of Chester County. But like I said, the thing that really stood out to me and our crew here on the ground was the more tightly focused aerial uh, support. Because, you know, when we've been seeing these choppers up, these uh, fixed wings up. They're making large, miles-long circles around the area, Uh, really you think, looking to see if they can spot anything or even just providing some support to troopers on the ground. Take a look here, take a look there. Uh, But this has been a very, very focused circle, and I think you can hear uh, some folks honking as this news starts to spread that Danilo Cavalcante has been captured. There's already some support that we're seeing from uh, local folks giving it to the troopers who are standing at this intersection uh, at the northeast corner of this perimeter phil poppy
1: danny just excellent reporting stay with us as we bring in cnn chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst sean miller they got him john
7: they got him it appears from what i'm hearing that they captured him without incident meaning um as far as i can tell at this point he's okay they're okay so that's pretty
1: remarkable right
7: some of the fears we've been talking about uh, may not have been realized um this is something that seems to have happened fairly recently So where do we go from here? Um, Number one, he's in custody. The first thing that they would probably like to do is talk to him, which is, where have you been? What have you done? Who's helped you? Um, They probably can't do that because he is currently represented by counsel um, in his murder case, which is on appeal. So likely that won't happen. Second thing is, he's in custody. They're gonna take him to um, another facility I'm about 100 percent sure it will not be the one he escaped from, but a more secure facility. He was to be transferred from that county facility to a state prison. Um, but because he is obviously an extreme escape risk, not just an escape risk, um, they'll have to they'll have to take him somewhere else.
2: I, I want to go back to, to the question Poppy just asked that. The surprise that there was no—it doesn't seem to have been any incident, that there doesn't seem to have been any use of his weapon, at least that we know of up to this point. Um, We were talking 20 minutes prior, and that seemed to be almost an inevitability, given kind of his behavioral construct, how he'd been operating.
7: Why do you think that was? Well, we don't know what we don't know, but the models are worn out and tired and ran into him, and he surrendered peacefully. The other model is, um, you know, he tends to sleep by daylight and operate by nightlight. They may have come upon him while he was asleep. Um, these are details they're putting together. We're expecting uh, a press conference that's going to be somewhere between nine and nine thirty, probably closer to nine thirty, where we'll we'll hear this story. Um, but uh, the simple parts of it is, uh, yeah. it's over. And um, and it appears everybody's OK.
1: So if you were a journalist, we know Daniel will be at that 930 a.m. press conference. Yeah. What do you think are the most pressing questions police authorities need to answer?
7: I think it's <laughs> where has he been? How did he get so far? And um, and what was his reaction to being captured? It's going to be really interesting if he was awake, um, whether he surrendered peacefully or whether it was a chase, uh, whether he had the gun with him or that was in a stash somewhere. Uh, there's a lot There's a lot we're going to learn. All right,
2: John, stay with us. We have the official tweet coming out from Pennsylvania State Police. I want to pull that up uh, if I can in a second. Actually, I don't have that. Here, oh, it, here is. it is, right here. Uh, a press conference announcing details of the capture of Daniela Cavalcante is scheduled for 9.30 a.m. at the Pomar Lynn Fire Company, 36 Firehouse Drive. It's in mm-hmm. Kennett Square, Pennsylvania. Uh, The capture, in all caps, Uh, certainly you can understand that emphasis given the course of the last 14 days and the efforts, Uh, and I think frustration, which you could hear in some of the past press conferences from law enforcement as they went through this. Now at 9.30, uh, as you noted, from a law enforcement perspective, again, I think we were to some degree surprised over the course of the last two weeks that it had taken this long, even though the search area seemed to be not 10 states wide. You never really were, though. Why not?
7: Because... If you look at the stats, um, most people who break out of prison are literally arrested within 24 hours, and most of them walking on the road away from the prison. Uh, this was a person who had a plan. This was a person who had the intestinal fortitude to undergo many challenges while on the run. Um, his mother told us a, a, about a lot of that. But- these are,
1: John, sorry to interrupt, these are live pictures. This is the first we are all seeing of Danilo Cavalcante. He is in custody. John, walk us through what you see here.
7: Um, I see a SWAT team, uh, which is probably the people who took him into custody. Um, And I see a guy who has a change of clothes that we're not familiar with, which is a new sweatshirt and a dark pair of pants. Um, There were reports that a backpack was found overnight um, that that had things in it, clothing items and so on, that may have been his is that possibly what spurred them into a certain area but he has been doing these kind of home invasions and burglaries and garage you know siftings trying to find um different outfits to keep changing his appearance and you know our last reporting was he was shirtless so he clearly has had these stashes while he's hiding out but uh, you can tell even as as he's walking uh, he's a guy who's worn down from this flight
2: We've talked about the the, the scale of the federal and state resources. What we're looking at right now, you mentioned it's a SWAT team. Do we have any sense of who they, you know, there's different uniforms uh, along with the SWAT uh, officials that are there, who we're looking at, why there are so many of them?
7: Well, I think, number one, uh, every SWAT team in Pennsylvania, give or take, you know, had contributed people to that, as well as the FBI, the ATF, uh, Customs and Border Patrol, Um, a lot of specialized units, um, you know, the FBI's operational technology Why are they
2: look at, they're cutting off his shirt right now. Why would they be cutting off his shirt?
7: Um, Could be for purposes of identification, meaning... um, Well, take that tattoo
1: on his back.
7: He's he's known to have, you know, specific tattoos, and they want to be able to confirm that they have not just a guy wandering in the woods, but the guy.
1: I, I, I'm going to bring Danny Freeman in um, as well on the ground. And Danny, as I bring you in, we're just learning that this reverse 911 call has gone out to people on the ground, telling them the search for Daniela Cavalcante is over. The suspect is now in custody. Remember, this was a community terrorized by this, told to stay inside, and authorities want them to know that he is caught.
11: that's absolutely right and remember it's not just this immediate community that we are in right now in South Coventry Township it's really the entirety of Chester County i mean and quite frankly many of the neighboring uh, counties as well who have been on edge uh, for 14 days since this inmate escaped and just looking at some of these live photos poppy i mean this is the moment that so many in law enforcement have really been waiting for as well they've been waiting for the moment that they could bring him into custody i'm sure they are glad that we have uh, aerial footage of this whole process taking place. You can see Pennsylvania State Police down there, and you can see some of those enormous assets as well that have been brought in uh, over the course of this investigation, especially in the past 48 hours when there was this truly intense uh, show of force after that revelation came out that Cavalcante did indeed uh, get his hands on a rifle. But no doubt, like I said before, we've been out here at this particular intersection on the corner of the northeasternmost uh, part of this perimeter, just uh, as I keep saying as well, a few miles it seems from where helicopters are watching Cavalcante from above. uh, And folks have been applauding. There have been uh, honks uh, towards these troopers. Uh, There is definitely a sense of relief and frankly, thanks that Pennsylvania State Police and this entire state, federal, and local law enforcement apparatus has been able to apprehend Cavalcante here.
2: John, I just want to go back to what we've been watching on the screen here, because I think it gets to what you uh, suspected might be happening. Not only was his sweatshirt and his T-shirt uh, taken off, cut off, it also seemed they didn't have his pants on either. Uh, wasn't completely naked. But and then they were taking photos. And you think that's an identification uh, of markings or tattoos or right. confirmation?
7: Exactly. And I mean, there's another step to that. Um, they have his biometrics, so they have his DNA because he's been a, a prisoner. They have, you know, his prints. Um, But these are the immediate identifications they can make to make sure that they have a person who fits the unique characteristics, if not the biometric characteristics of the person they're looking for.
1: If you're just joining us, I want to reset the breaking news. You are looking at live pictures of the capture of escaped fugitive Danielo Cavalcante, convicted murderer who's been on the lam for more than two weeks And these are aerial images of just an enormous SWAT team taking him down, cuffed, putting him into this van, cutting off his shirt as they identify him. With us now, former Supervisory Special Agent Scott Duffy joins us. Context of this, you did something very similar in 1999 with an escaped killer on the run. What are your thoughts as we wait for this press conference?
25: Oh good morning to you both and uh, thanks for having me on. I'm telling you I'm feeling the same chills just watching the same thing that everybody's watching and uh, brings back all of the the flood of emotions from 1999. The fact that he is caught, the fact that no uh, from from what I gather nobody injured. It's fantastic and uh, to to have taken him into custody is just um There's a lot of emotions, and as as I saw the the all the different vehicles kind of rushing out of the scene, trying to head to to wherever they're going, they're all they're all feeling the same thing. That one um, moment of elation, just bringing calmness to a to to a ravaged community, and they're probably all heading to to put eyes on him to say, "This is who we've been looking for um, for the last two weeks." So it's a tremendous celebration. Um, especially with all that is being said, the professionals got him, they took the fight to him and they took him into custody without, it looks like without, without incident. Can you describe kind yeah. of the combination of anxiety and
2: intensity that would be felt just before this moment? Like how these guys were feeling the law enforcement that you're looking at on the ground, uh, over the course of the last several days, especially when they found out he was armed.
25: Yeah, that 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 just raised the tensions uh, to to a whole new level. There, there, law enforcement is on high alert, right? And so everybody's looking up. They're looking three sixty, but then to have confirmation that he took a gun and that uh, he he is armed just just send that acute awareness to a whole new level. Uh, so you know you have you have the the. Neighbors that are locking doors and doing everything shutter in place. But law enforcement is out there and they are searching day and night, especially with the storms last night. Um, But to be able to zero in on him, from what I gather, get the right uh, people in place, the tactical units, it's it's game over. And, And especially to be able to walk him to a police car. Um, it's just, it, it, there's just no words to describe. Law enforcement is, that, that high is still very high. They're all on cloud nine and uh, will be for some time. Today.
1: John Miller, I want you to weigh in here. This, this is your expertise and we're seeing it live play out here. We're waiting for the press conference at 9.30. Your thoughts?
7: You know, this is reflective of other manhunts we've seen and other manhunts we've seen in Pennsylvania. It's really interesting because these are fairly rare occurrences, but in in just the past recent years, you had the case of Eric Frein, a domestic terrorist who uh, opened fire on Pennsylvania State Police. That was a 48-day manhunt through the woods using the same tactics, uh, many of the same people. It ended in a terrible shootout where The face of this investigation, the voice of this investigation, uh, George Bivens, the lieutenant colonel from the state police, said this was the most intense gun battle he had ever seen in his career. Um, Much more recently, in July, we had the case of Michael Burnham, a survivalist, a former military uh, man who went into the woods. That lasted about 10 days. Um, And you see the marshals, the US marshals, they are in the manhunting business. The state police, they've been through this, um, as our agent was just describing, you know, multiple times in very similar dynamics. Um, in some way, this is a familiar ending for them, um, much better than in the Fryn case um, and uh, and similar to the Burnham case. Uh, but I think these things have brought them closer together as a team. Okay.
1: Can I ask you what they're doing right now? So I had expected them to put him in the in the van. Is that even the right term? Close the door and go. Are they interrogating him right now? Are they asking him questions? What are they doing in there right now with him?
7: You know, I don't think that they can get too far into the interrogation except for the public safety part of it, which mm-hmm. is, you know, anything that would uh, constitute an immediate threat to somebody else. Because as we've talked about before, he's He's represented by a lawyer, mm-hmm. um, but I think they're probably settling more on um, where are we going, where are we bringing him, are they ready, um, and. Uh, well, that's and a good point. Like are they that. ready
1: to take him in wherever we're taking him? Right. Yeah.
2: yeah. Hey, Danny, and for those of you who are watching on the left, is just moments ago when we saw Danielle Cavalcante, who was led in handcuffs and what looked to be different clothing than we had seen earlier earlier in the week. We knew he had changed clothes. Uh, in handcuffs to the uh, picture where on your right, where he has been now loaded in handcuffs into that uh, law enforcement vehicle before being loaded in. His sweatshirt uh, and pants have been removed for what we believe, at least according to John Miller, look to be uh, identification purposes, still waiting to see where he will head next. Do we still have Danny? I wanted to ask Danny uh, Freeman a question just because he's been on the ground and, and Danny, you, you've literally covered this, it seems like every hour of the last 14 days. The community itself, um, we have, yeah, I know it's been a long couple of weeks, but the, the community itself, we talk constantly about where law enforcement is, what their strategy is, what their plan is. The community itself, when you have talked to people in the community, um, I, I try to imagine the fear as a, as a parent, as somebody who would live in the area. What was your sense of that?
11: Well, I'll go a step further, Phil. Uh, Not only as a parent, but just as someone who lives in this area. I spoke to, actually, a gentleman who's a contributor for CNN. Uh, He came up to this area because his mother lives right in the search perimeter, and he said, I'm just a afraid because my mom is here basically by herself and I want to stay over just to give some sort of uh, peace of mind and comfort. Uh, That's really what people have been thinking about. You know, how do I secure my home, protect my house because as of Monday night they knew definitively he was here and of course it turns out he was here the whole time. Uh, Let me actually talk about this, Phil, because we're looking at these pictures right now and I I have a little bit more information as to where exactly this is. Let's be very clear. This capture it appears, happened smack dab in the middle of this most recent perimeter that the police set up. We're in South Coventry Township. Uh, We're on the uh, uh, northeastern portion of this uh, perimeter. And if I'm looking at the map and we can see where some of these helicopters that are providing this live footage are, it seems that it's just maybe a mile, two miles south of where we are, just off of Route 100. And I'm looking at the map here, again, near where these images you're looking of with this intense police presence. And you can see there is the French Creek. That's a location that we've been talking about uh, when we've been asking law enforcement folks uh, where they're searching. Uh, And it also seems to be centered very close to Prizer Road, uh, which is also uh, an offshoot of Potsdam Pike. That's Route 100 that we're standing on right over here. So all uh, signs here seem to suggest that this capture happened in this perimeter, and that has been one of the main messages that Pennsylvania State Police has been trying to say from the moment Cavalcante escaped the Longwood Gardens area. We believe he's in this perimeter. We believe we have him contained. We have set up troopers basically every you know, 200 to 300 feet to try and seal him in, to try and trap him in, and then ultimately flush him out. It seems as though at this moment that is what yeah. has happened here. And you can see the, the law enforcement uh, agents gathering uh, out there on the scene, waiting to see where this vehicle goes next. Uh, and I, I'm sure at 9.30, Uh, When this Pennsylvania State Police press conference uh, occurs, we'll get more details exactly about exactly how they were able to take Cavalcante into custody here.
1: Danny, this vehicle that our viewers are watching, a big black vehicle, there's a motorcade now surrounding it, uh, has Daniel Cavalcante inside John Miller? Where is he going? And when he gets there, what happens?
7: They anticipated, I think, in optimistic terms that they were going to catch him. So they must have a designated space where they intend to bring him. Um, He's going to undergo a medical check um, and then some intake process and then sort out whose prisoner he is. Mm. Part of what we saw is kind of the delay of getting him into the back of that Bearcat, which is a bulletproof vehicle, was probably figuring out, okay, who and whose custody is he? Is it you? Is it you? Is it the marshals? Is it the state police? What are we using? Are we using the federal warrant, the unlawful flight to avoid prosecution? Are we using the state warrant? You know, they're sorting all that out. um, But he's definitely going to a police facility uh, and then likely um, either medical people will be brought there to check him out um, or he will be brought to a medical facility. Uh, But given his history, all that's going to be done on a very uh, tight security basis.
1: I know this sounds like a silly question, but he was already serving, I believe, up to a life sentence convicted of murdering his girlfriend. Does anything change for him now in prison?
7: Conditions will. You know, it's not a silly question. It's actually quite interesting because part of the psychological calculus here is a guy with nothing to lose. He's serving life in prison. He's wanted in Brazil for another case. Um, You know, he he is a guy with no prospects of ever getting out of prison, mm-hmm. uh, so thus his motive to escape. But because he's going to be carried as an escape risk, as a tier one, you know, risk prisoner, um, his his the facility he's going to be put in is not going to be a regular prison. It's going to be maximum security. Um, the conditions he's held in may be um, administrative segregation uh, or more stringent than regular prisons because of his history. So uh, his life is going to be as bad as it was before, but a little worse.
2: Yeah. Those dynamics, I think we already asked you about it, but Scott, if we still have you, are you surprised that it seems that this, it clearly has, at least based on what we've seen, ended without incident, that there was no gunshots fired that we know of at this point, nobody was injured, no hostages were taken, that it appears that he was taken uh, somewhat peacefully and is now on his way to prison.
25: Yeah, I guess I would say I am surprised. When he took that gun, that that was an outward sign that I am not giving up. and And the fact that he wasn't fleeing the area, he had his chance once he broke the initial perimeter, once he got to an area that he was familiar with, once he figured out that, okay, family, friends, or associate is not going to give me what I need, I'm going to still go because I'm still ahead of law enforcement. But he stayed and he stayed, and he ca- and he got a gun.
1: John John Miller wanted to chime in here. John.
7: So as you look at them walking, you'll see one of the SWAT officers uh, just on the right side of your screen has his weapon, but he's carrying a separate weapon. That is apparently the twenty-two long rifle with the scope on it, which indicates it was oh, recovered with right him. Right
2: now, the third guy that's behind holding? Exactly.
7: Yeah. So um, as I was looking at them walking, I was looking for who has more than one rifle and yeah. that rifle fits the description of the one that was stolen. So,
2: yeah, for viewers, it's the if you're looking at the screen again, this is from moments ago, that Danielle Cavalcante is in the vehicle that you see on the right side of your screen, on the left side of your screen, the man in the uniform on the far right you just kind of walked off screen, he's holding a gun with a scope uh, which uh, John points out is, is likely the the weapon that had been obtained by Danielle Cavalcante and really I think ramped up a whole new level of urgency in
7: this investigation. And I mean, it's indicative of the fact that they have him in cuffs here, and they have that weapon there that it was likely found on him, with him, near him during this capture, uh, which, of course, is, has been one of the great concerns throughout this hunt in the last 24 hours.
1: John, stick with us. Danny Freeman, just so remarkable from the way he escaped from prison, crab walking up that wall to being on the run for two weeks to getting a firearm, which is now in the hands of the marshals there. So many questions about what happens to him now, Danny, when he gets to jail again.
11: Well, the first thing that we understand about where he may ultimately heading now is that he will not be going to any county-run jail or prison. They'll be sending him to a state facility, which is uh, run statewide, so that will be in a much more uh, hopefully secure uh, environment where they will keep him uh, for the foreseeable future. Remember, he already was convicted of murder and was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole, so they can probably just expedite uh, that process now, but Poppy, I want to back up first second and just give some context. This has been a strange summer when it comes to prison escapes uh, in and around Pennsylvania. We saw two inmates uh, escape a Philadelphia uh, prison back earlier in the spring. Then we saw that manhunt for Michael Burham uh, back in the northwest part of the state as well. Uh, And now we have this particular uh, escape with Danilo Cavalcante. This was the longest escape of these that have gotten a lot of attention over the course of uh, the summer. Law enforcement sources told told me that they really wanted to beat the record of uh, about 12 or 13 days uh, or 10 days in one case for the other escapes. It's been a long journey for law enforcement. They've been out in these woods in Chester County in a lot of times braving intense heat with all of their tactical gear. Uh, They've also had to contend with weather as well. There's been a lot of rain over the past two weeks. Uh, This is a moment that I know Pennsylvania State Police, U.S. Marshals have been waiting for uh, for quite a long time. And as you keep noting, Poppy, also the community of Chester County has been on edge for 14 days. Uh, Now, this nightmare, really, which is what it was, especially after getting a hand on a gun, this nightmare finally over for this community.
2: Yeah, there's a sense that people can exhale uh, across the board, uh, including to some degree yourself, Danny. Uh, but first, you've got to go to a press conference. So we're, we're going to let you break free. Uh, great reporting as it has been every single day for the last 14 days. Hey, Scott, as we, we kind of close out, I want to ask a, a great question, steal a great question Poppy had for John. In this press conference that Danny is going to be heading over to right now, if you're in that room, what's the first question you have for law enforcement?
25: Well, uh, I think it would be, did he say anything? That I, I would want to know if, w- what was the moment that he's caught? Did his hands go up? Did he lay down? Or what, what was that moment at the, at the very moment of capture? That's what I would want to know. Did he say anything? Did he, like, thank God this is over. I, I want to know what was in his mind at the time that he gave up.
1: John Miller, when are we going to know where he's going?
7: Um, we when he are, gets
1: there, literally?
7: <laughs> we are probably going to know where he's going exactly when that helicopter shot shows that uh, vehicle going into a building. Yeah, can I ask yeah. you about that? Because we've
2: shown this again. What you're seeing on the left of your screen is moments ago, uh, before he got into the vehicle on the right, uh, as law enforcement, the, the SWAT forces were walking him to uh, the vehicle you see now, where they all kind of surrounded him and took a photo. I think there was uh, search dogs as well in there. Is that
7: uh why? Um, that is probably for their Twitter feed, and you know the why is interesting. We live in a world where they have been um, extraordinarily transparent and in touch with a very engaged, a very engaged community, reverse 911 mm-hmm. calls, yeah. uh, the Chesco Alert system, which pushes informations to people's phones, and they've been putting out scary messages not just there's an escape prisoner be on the lookout but lock your doors lock your cars secure your items because he's in your area now and these have been geocoded so the idea of taking that picture this is him we know it's him he's in custody we caught him. So
2: you're not saying personal Twitter feed for all the individuals. You're saying it's an actual, from okay. a public relations and community perspective, a demonstration to some.
7: I think they need to put out to the community on the same channels that so they're using see it, to right? send them messages of concern that you can exhale now and go back to your normal lives and you know send your kids back to school and a bunch of things. So I think it had a legitimate public purpose rather than um, just for their photo collection.
1: Um. I, look conform has this uh, photo isolated I want to show everyone um, that what what can you tell us there John uh, that is happening this is the gun they believe that he stole right
7: right so from here um, it looks like uh, it looks like a bolt action 22 it looks like it um, it it uh, it has a scope uh, clearly on top of it. Mm-hmm. And that is the description of the gun that was leaning against the garage wall when he ran in, found the homeowner in the garage, and uh, took that while he fled. He had shots fired uh, at him. But it's also the weapon, because of its configuration, that has been of tremendous concern. Basically, it's a hunting weapon. And while it's a twenty two which is probably not armor-piercing, but it does have a scope, which means you can shoot accurately from a long distance and when you're searching for somebody in the woods who can get a bead on you um that's a real concern and that of course changed the tenor of this in the last day
1: final thought as we have uh, just a little bit of time left as we continue to watch this
7: what you saw here was fantastic teamwork and when i say fantastic teamwork it wasn't agencies jostling for who was in charge um, or who was going to get you know the, the most faceTime or TV time. Um, this was a team that has done this before together and has done it again, and they must feel very good about the outcome and that it was peaceful.
2: And we're going to hear from that team at 9:30 when the Pennsylvania State Police holds a press conference again, Danielle Cavalcante, after 14 days, has been taken into custody. We've been watching the process from being loaded into the vehicle you see on your right. A community can exhale, law enforcement can exhale. And a convicted murderer is now heading back into custody. CNN's breaking coverage of the capture of murderer Danielle Cavacante continues right now with CNN News Central. Stay with us.
1: That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at CNN.com audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening.